Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. By transcription. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. And Palmolive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. episode of Our Miss Brooks, under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, bringing an apple to the teacher is an old custom indeed. But Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, was quite surprised last Friday morning when Walter Denton handed her a large bouquet of roses as she got into his car to drive to school. Why, Walter, these flowers are lovely, but what's the occasion? You're the occasion, beauteous one. <laughs> the very fact of your presence in my humble conveyance is cause for celebration. And alongside of you, these flowers seem like so many weeds. That's a very pretty speech, Walter, but I still say these are beautiful flowers. Look at these stems, so long and straight. Alongside of yours. They're... I get the idea. <laughs> Now, what's behind this flattering demonstration of affection? Behind it? Oh, what could possibly be behind it but a genuine desire to make my favorite teacher happy? Besides, I don't deserve all your gratitude. Some of these flowers were picked in the backyard of a neighbor of mine, Tex Barton. You mean the boy whose folks recently moved here from Texas? Yeah, that's him. Oh, he's very fond of school, Miss Brooks. I know. The minute the final bell rings, he drags himself off the campus as if he was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder why he doesn't park his horse in the hallway. Well, there's a reason for his rush, Miss Brooks. Texas' dad is on the local draft board, and he's helping him check the outgoing mails. That's a switch. In my English class, he checks nothing but the incoming females. <laughs> but uh, let's get back to the flowers, Walter. Your giving them to me was leading up to a favor, wasn't it? A favor? Me? Oh, Miss Brooks, how can you possibly suspect me of such foul tactics? No matter how much you pump me, I'm not going to divulge the dismal fact that last Monday, Mr. Conklin caught me holding hands with Harriet and ordered me to stay for an hour after school for two weeks to take care of such sundry backbreaking and humiliating jobs as sweeping out classrooms, washing windows, and <laughs> emptying wastebaskets. I don't know, Mr. Interlocutor. Why should you tell me that Mr. Conklin ordered you to stay for an hour after school for two weeks to take care of such sundry, back-breaking, and humiliating jobs as sweeping out classrooms, washing windows, and <laughs> emptying wastebaskets? <laughs> you see, that's just my point. It isn't any of your concern, Miss Brooks. This is my problem and mine alone. Why, you'd have to flay me with a horsewhip before I'd ask you to drop into Mr. Conklin's office this morning and ask him to ease up on me. I, I just couldn't ask you to do that, Miss Brooks. You couldn't? Definitely not. However, if you were sweet enough to volunteer... Have a seat, Miss Brooks. I'll be with you as soon as I get this fishing and hunting equipment unpacked. Well, that's quite an assortment, Mr. Conklin. This fishing tackle is the best money can buy. And look at this, Miss Brooks. Isn't this fly rod a beauty? Oh, it's perfect. Anybody that couldn't catch flies with that has no talent. 
<laughs> the reason I came into your office... Presently, is Miss Brooks, presently. I can hardly wait to try this stuff out at Crystal Lake over the weekend. I'm leaving right after school. $200 worth of sporting goods. And I could never have afforded it without consummating one of my shrewdest transactions this week. Would you like to hear about it, Miss Brooks? Well, frankly, I'll sir. tell you. <laughs> Do you remember the extra car I've had in my garage for lo these many months? The bargain I told you I'd relinquish? You mean the 1928 Hupmobile? The sale. Well, the other day I found a sucker, a uh, customer. <laughs> That's the car you were going to show me when I was visiting you and Mrs. Conklin one afternoon, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes. Did I show it to you? No, it was too ill to accept visitors that day. <laughs> Hardening of the crankshaft had set in. Well, confidentially, it has no motor, but I neglected to mention that fact to my customer. But what did you tell him? I merely informed him that I had misplaced the ignition key and that he may pick up the car this afternoon. By then, I'll be on my way to Crystal Lake with his check for $200 already in my pocket. But, Mr. Conklin, that doesn't sound very ethical to me. All's fair in business, Miss Brooks. Remember that. Now, I'd like to write my customer some sort of a cheer-up message and leave it pinned to the tow rope on the rear axle. <laughs> but before I can write anything, you will have to walk over to the supply room and get me some stationery. I'm all out. Yes, sir, but first, may I say a word in behalf of Walter Denton? If it's a word that accurately describes him, it'll only serve to embarrass the both of us. <laughs> Please, sir. He told me you gave him two weeks' detention for holding hands with your daughter. And you're displeased with my decision in this matter? Mr. Conklin, I don't mean to encroach upon your authority, but all I ask is, does the punishment fit the crime? Perhaps not, but that can be adjusted. Instead of two weeks' detention, I'll give him a month. <laughs> a month? Picking up waste baskets and emptying them into an incinerator? Uh, I'm glad you reminded me. I want Denton to move the incinerator away from the fence. Fence? There's no fence near our incinerator. I'm glad you reminded me. Denton has always struck me as being the sort of boy who could build a first-rate fence. <laughs> but, Mr. Conklin, how can Walter possibly find time to complete all these extra tasks? I see what you mean, Miss Brooks, and I do want to be fair about this matter. I tell you what, instead of a month, I'll extend his detention period to six weeks. Now, uh, get that stationery and hurry back. Please. Oh, but, Mr. Conklin, please. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Walter, but... Yeah, I know, Miss Brooks. With the transom open, I could hear the entire sickening conversation. <laughs> then you know that I tried. My appreciation for your efforts is only exceeded by my gratitude that you came out when you did. <laughs> Somehow I got the feeling that if you'd said four more words in my behalf, you'd have had me in the gas chamber. <laughs> Cheer up, Walter. Maybe he'll relent before the six weeks are up. Well, I've got to... Wait a minute. Is there a circus on our campus? A circus? Of course not. Then why is that antelope coming down our hallway? <laughs> it's Tex Barton, Miss Brooks. Hi, Tex. Hi, Walter. Howdy, Miss Brooks. Howdy, stranger. Shucks, ma'am, I ain't no stranger to you. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Uh, Tex, your pal Walter needs a bit of pepping up. He's pretty low this morning. Shucks, pard, that ain't no way to be. Well, I can't help, I can't help it. <laughs> 
Morris Brooks tried to get me out of a jam with Mr. Conklin, but it was no dice. Well, now, if a handsome critter like you couldn't soften the hombre, he must be dead set again, Walter. Forgive my boldness, ma'am, but you're as pretty as a Palomino mare eloping off to the barn when she gets a whiff of new mown hay. What can I say, Tex, after I've said... Excuse me, kids. I've got to lope over to the supply room and get Mr. Conklin some writing paper. Be in class later on. Yeah, goodbye, Miss Brooks. Adios, meet Chiquita. Say, uh, Walter, would you keep these papers in your briefcase for me? I forgot mine. Oh, sure, Tex. Say, these are a bunch of blank induction notices, aren't they? Yeah, uh-huh. I gotta bring them to my pa down to the draft board after school. Hey, wait a minute. I've got an idea. If old Marblehead thinks he's going fishing at Crystal Lake while I do a lot of menial jobs around here, he's got another think coming. Now, where's that pen of mine? Oh, here we are. Walter, what are you going to do? I've already done it. I wrote Mr. Conklin's name on this induction notice. <laughs> now, we'll slip it under his door and beat it. <laughs> Stationery you wanted, Mr. Conklin. Oh, what's this on the floor? Some sort of a notice. A notice? Hand it to me, please. Uh, uh, Oscar and Conklin, Prince of Robinson, Madison High School, just for Oh, God! <laughs> what does it say, Mr. Conklin? It says, Greeting. No, it is not my birthday. These greetings inform me that I have been selected for training and service in the armed forces of the United States. You? They must be in quite a hurry to get me. They didn't even mail this thing. They just slipped it under the door. And I have to report this afternoon. Well, this is it. Oh, now, don't jump to conclusions, Mr. Conklin. At your age... There they... is no age limit for a good soldier, Miss Brooks. You forget I resigned my commission as a major in 1946. This notice makes it obvious the top brass wants me back. But, sir, if you were a major, why wouldn't they offer you a commission instead of inducting you as a private? Politics. <laughs> Besides, mine not to reason why... Ah, I'll miss my life here at Madison. No more meetings, no more books. No more teachers' dirty looks. (laughs) I still can't believe that our military situation is so desperate that... Well, why should they want a high school? (laughs) They always want efficient men in the armed forces, Miss Brooks. They just figured it's time old Coke and Crackers Conklin was back in harness, that's all. Coke and Crackers Conklin? An affectionate nickname the boys pinned on me for my lengthy tour of duty at the canteen snack bar. <laughs> uh, it looks like Eisenhower was right when he inspected our Indian wrestling team at the Elks Club in 1940. At that time, he shook hands with me and said, Conklin, you've got a firm grip, the kind of a grip this country needs. General Eisenhower said that to you? It was Lieutenant Eisenhower <laughs> then, Miss Brooks. 
Lieutenant in World War II? I'll never forget that man. Lieutenant Stanley Eisenhower. <laughs> oh, I remember him. Good pal of Ensign Sam Nimitz, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, but, Mr. Conklin, if you're going to report to your draft board this afternoon, is, is there anything I can do to assist you at school? Your loyalty touches an old soldier's heart, Miss Brooks. Yes, come to think of it, there's a lot you can do. Firstly, I won't be needing any of this sports equipment. Please try to dispose of it for me. But can't you take it back to the store? Uh, no, no, I bought it at a final sale. Perhaps you could auction it off. I'm sure some of the teachers might be interested, if only for sentimental reasons, in owning something that belonged, however fleetingly, to their departing principal. Well, if the price is cheap enough. I mean, <laughs> what we could do is put up a notice on the bulletin board and hold the auction in the gym. But, Mr. Conklin, I don't know very much about auctioning things off, and since this emergency was caused by the armed forces, I'd like your permission to telephone Marshall. Defense Secretary Marshall? No, Marshall Monaghan. He's a war surplus auctioneer. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, However, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. Yes, sir, Rinso, the soap that gets clothes Rinso White and Rinso Bright brings you the Amos and Andy Show. A full half hour of entertainment with all the Amos and Andy characters, plus Fred Drutkin and his orchestra, and those famous... Company, the makers of Rinso, invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of Amos and Andy. We all like to receive letters, and the Kingfisher's wife is no different from anyone else. The morning mail brought a letter to the Kingfisher's home. George ain't got a wonderful letter. My sister in Philadelphia is inviting me to come over there right away and spend the entire summer with her. Yeah, the United States Mail is a great institution. They do a lot of good in this world. Just think, for three cents, something wonderful like this happens. Where can you get a bargain like that? On the mailman's second round this afternoon, he drops another letter at the home of the Kingfish. George, I just got a letter from my brother Alonzo, who lives in North Carolina. He's coming up here and wants to spend the summer here at the house. The quicker the government closes up the United States mail, the better off everybody going to be. <laughs> All the mail is used for is to defraud us innocent people with a lot of crazy relatives. Oh, what you talking about? What 
you talking about? You ain't never met my brother Alonzo. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I ain't never going to meet your brother Alonzo, neither. He ain't coming up here and messing around with me. I don't want to meet Oh, him. now, listen, George. Alonzo needs a vacation. His wife's run away, and he's sending his two boys away to summer camp. Is that the place that he told you about that they sent him last year with a high barbed wire fence and the armed guard walking around? <laughs> I wish you wouldn't be so silly. He'll be good company for you. He plays tennis, golf, handball, and I'll be away all summer. Yeah, well, why has he got to come up here and spoil it just because I got a lucky break with you going away? What's that? I mean, uh, a lucky break with you getting a vacation. All right, then. We'll just forget Alonzo. Well, thanks for them kind words. Well, I'm leaving tomorrow, and while I'm over in Philadelphia with my sister for the summer, there's a little matter of money I want to talk to you about. Well, now, I'm glad you brung that up, honey. The best way to handle it is just to send me whatever you can. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I certainly want it quiet, so Dr. Stevens, I believe I'll make the switch. 
Now, my bags are still at the depot. Yeah, well, now, I'll tell you what you do. You go get your bags, and you come back here, and I'll take you over to my restaurant. Does your service include a nurse? A uh, nurse? Oh, uh, sure. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, hey, hey, come now. Uh, uh, come in, Miss Brown. Uh, hi, Jason. Uh, Miss Simpkins, take care of Miss Brown. How do you do, Miss Brown? Same to you, likewise. <laughs> uh, well, now, uh, you go ahead, and I'll see you later, Miss Simpkins. Thank you, and I'll be back. Who was that? Oh, just a fella. Uh, Andy, did you ever think of doing some good in this world? Maybe looking in history and finding somebody that you would like to copy? Well, I ain't talked about nothing like that lately. Who would I copy? Uh, stand over there and let me take a look at you a minute, see who you remind me of. Mm-hmm. I got it. Florence Nightingale. <laughs>
all dressed up in the white coat for that, ain't it? Well, the kingfisher's wife is going away, and we're going to open up a rest home. Yeah, well, that was a good idea. You two fellas ought to get a lot of use out of that. You're down all the time. No, no. Listen, I'm going to own half of the business, and the kingfisher's going to own half. We already got our first customer that we're going to nurse back to where he wants to be. He got legacy trouble. Suppose you were nursing a man and he really gets sick to it and busts out with a temperature of 104 one day. What is you going to do then? Sell my half of the business to the kingfish. <laughs> well, I thought you two guys had done everything in the world, but I guess there's always something new for you to get into. Yeah. Well, well hi, kingfish. Well, gentlemen. How is everything, doctor? Uh, male nurse, I want to talk to you about a new patient. <laughs> yeah, well, on the way to the rest home, why don't you two stop by a doctor and get your head examined? So long. So long, fella. Now, there's the ignorant fellow. Uh, look, and, uh, I was going home now and take Sapphire down to the train. Now, Mr. Simpkins is the patient, you know. Yeah. He is due back here any minute, so you stall around with him for a little while while I get Sapphire out. And then you take him over to my apartment and put him to bed. Just put him to bed, huh? Yeah, now the next... Wait a minute, that must be him now. Uh, come in. No, come in, Mr. Simpkins. Well, Dr. Stevens, I've got my bags here and I'm all ready. Why, Mr. Simpkins, a nervous man like you carrying those heavy bags. That ain't right, is it, male nurse? No, sir. <laughs> as soon as he carries them to the rest home, he can put them down. <laughs> uh, Mr. Brown, you is going to carry his bags to the house. His boss might and gonna have to do all this stuff. Uh, Mr. Simpkins, uh, I'm going to run on ahead now to the rest home myself and... Wait a minute, i get that. Uh, Hello? Simpkins up at your place with a 
There's only one bed up there, and I ain't got no place to cook food for him or nothing. Oh, that's all right. You can go out and buy food for him. Well, it's going to cost money, but okay. Yeah, well, now I don't got the man out of the office, so I could get it into your sick head what I'm trying to tell you. Now, do you understand everything? Yeah, all except one thing. What's that? How did that other gal by the name of Sapphire ever get in your apartment? Oh. <laughs> right out and admits she's hard to convince. Says he has to see a thing to believe it. Right, Mrs. Snyder? Right, Mr. Cadell. You have to show me. And that's just what Rinso did. Rinso showed me that using the right wash day soap makes all the difference. Why, now, with Rinso in my washer, I turn out the most spanking clean, whitest, brightest wash in the neighborhood. But naturally, Mrs. Snyder, Rinso has a triple action formula. Contains a special soapy-rich base, an amazing suds booster, and a marvelous grease chaser. No wonder only Rinso can claim the unanimous recommendation of the makers of 33 leading washers. Rinso means dazzling results. A wash that's... Rinso white and Rinso bright. Uh, this is what we call the Stevens uh, Very Nervous uh, Rep Home Annex. You mean you use this room for rep home? Uh, that's right. Uh, say, male nurse Brown. Uh, yeah, doctor. I see the last patient here didn't make the bed when he left. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'll fix it up. Bob. Yeah. Reverse the sheets on there so the dirty side will be down next to the mattress. <laughs> Got to keep everything sanitary around here, Mr. Simpson. I think the best side is up now, doctor. Uh, <laughs> Before I leave you in care of Nurse Brown here, I'd like to give you a brief examination and see what kind of a diet to put you on. All right, Doctor. Whatever you say. All right, now let me give you a little examination here. Let's see your eyelids. Mm-hmm. Got two of them, ain't you? Yeah. <laughs> they close, all right. Uh, let me feel your pulse here. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two. Oh, sort of a rumble pulse you got there. Yeah. Uh, nurse, I uh, want the patient to go on a light diet. I'll like, Doctor. Well, don't let it run over 35 cents a day. Okay. Uh, now, Mr. Simpkins, uh, Nurse Brown will be here with you on 24-hour duty. You mean that he's going to be in the same room with me all the time? Yeah, better than that, he's going to be in the same bed with you. I never heard of that. Yeah, well, just a safety measure. On real serious cases, I call in there, too, you see. Well, I don't know if I'm going to like this arrangement. Well, now, Mr. Simpkins, we feel that... If a man is really sick, it's always safer to have a hospital staff right in bed with him. You know? Well, what is the advantage of that? Well, with Nurse Brown in bed with you, in case you want some aspirin during the night, all you got to do is nudge him. Yeah, and I'll tell you what it is. Been in the main restroom for a couple of days. Uh, how do you like it? Uh, much better than the annex. 
I had a good night's sleep last night, Doctor. Yeah, well, I'm uh, glad you moved over here. What time is it, by the way? Just 12 o'clock noon. Well, we'll wake up the male nurse here. Uh, hey, male nurse, wake up. Hey. Uh, uh, hello. Oh, hi, Doctor. What you doing in your nightgown, Jesus? Uh, oh, uh, I've been in surgery. Slept in surgery last night, huh?
her, and you got to be reasonable about it. The minute I go out of town... Well, you... now, listen, honey, you done met the patient. Uh, he is a nice fella, and, and you is doing this to be human for him. And on top of that, I tell you what I'll do. I'll go to work someplace. And another thing, whatever I get out of him, I'm going to split it with you. All right, Joe. Oh, that's a sweet wife. Now, come on in. Let's go in the next room with the patient again. Well, the Simpsons, uh, Savoy here is going to be your nurse from now on instead of male nurse Brown. Oh, that'll be fine. Yeah, and I want you to promise me one thing, patient, that all during the summer you'll do everything that the nurse tells you to do. I promise, doctor. All right, then. Well, you'll excuse me. I'll see you later. Goodbye. And, patient, I want you to promise me one thing. What's that? That all during the summer you'll never let Dr. Stevens know that you is my brother Alonzo. <laughs> This is our last broadcast this season, and we want to say goodbye. We are returning to the air again the last of September, and for this, we are very grateful to you. That's right. You folks have been mighty loyal to us, and we deeply appreciate it. And we thank you, too, for your loyalty to Rinso. We'll be back with you in the fall, and we're going to do our utmost to give you the very best show we can. Now, in the meantime, the makers of Rinso have another kind of a show for you, and it's a great show. One we know that you will enjoy. The name of it is... Call the police. And it's got everything. It's got mystery. It's got crime. A handsome detective. A beautiful girl. Mm. And love. Yes, sir, it's got love. So be sure to listen to Call the Police at this same time next Tuesday. That's right, folks. Listen to Call the Police on Tuesday evenings. And by the way, folks, the new Amos and Andy record album will be available very shortly. Maybe you might enjoy listening to it. In the meantime, we'll see you next fall. Good luck to all of you, and thank you for everything from everybody here. So long, folks. Goodbye, everybody. I never realized why Bill didn't ask me out again. I overheard that awful whisper. No man likes a girl with B.O. The way to stop those whispers is to take a daily bath with Life Boy. Life Boy is the only soap especially made to stop B.O. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday at the same time when Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Brinsdow, will present Call the Police. This is Carlton Cadell saying good night to all of you from all of us. Broadcasting Speaker, Mrs. Milan's very own. That is, when our young son Daniel hasn't picked it up and carried it off to his room. Oh, there you have it, Ray. Even a mere youngster can play it. Jimmy, you can hardly miss getting those seven-inch records onto the big sender spindle correctly. And what's there to do after that? Nothing but press one button once and enjoy up to 50 minutes of music. And what music, Jimmy? Such rich tone. And there's the second great feature of the RCA Victor 45. Quality. The third is its low cost. 45 automatic players begin at $12.95. And 45 records as low as 46 cents. Those 15 dance albums you mentioned, Ray, cost $12.45 less when purchased on 45. And that's only 50 cents short of the price of a completely automatic 45 attachment. With record savings like this, it's no wonder all America is swinging to 45. Best swing I've ever seen, Jimmy. None better, Ray. Friends... 
Join the swing to 45 when you buy your next record. Kraft presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> Company, who also bring you Bing Crosby every Thursday night, present each week at this time Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. On one of the nicest streets in the bustling city of Summerfield lives Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, a typical American uncle. Stout, jolly, faced with all the problems that the average uncle is faced with. He tries to guide his niece Marjorie and his nephew Leroy always with the very best intentions and sometimes with the very worst results. And now, The Great Gildersleeve. Well, thanks for the lift home, Judge Hooker. You're welcome. Say, Gildersleeve, I hate to bring this up, but isn't it about time we used your car? All right, I'll drive my car down tomorrow. You know I don't go downtown tomorrow. Sure, that's why I'm going to drive my car down. (laughs) Then it'll be your turn again to pick me up the day after, won't it? Yes. Hey, wait a minute. I'm getting gypped somewhere. See here, Hooker. If you're going to talk like that, I won't give you that spare inner tube. Oh, excuse me, Gildy, old pal. Just forget it. I'll be here for you. Goodbye. The old ghost. That's I better get that tube out of the safety deposit vault. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. You remember me, don't you? I'm Dottie from next door, and I just saw you driving up from behind our front curtains. I mean, I was behind them, not you, so I ran out to ask you a favor, and I'm sure you won't mind saying yes, because after all, there's nothing I want you to do, so you'll do it, won't you? <laughs> what? You want me to say yes to something you don't want me to do? Well, yes, that's exactly correct. You hit the nail right on the thumb. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it's... It's something I want to ask your niece Marjorie to do, and hasn't she got the loveliest red hair? See what kind of a rinse did she use to get at that shade, Mr. Gildersleeve? Young lady, Marjorie's hair is that way naturally. Well, naturally, that's what you would say. Well, the thing I wanted you to ask your niece to do for me is to take this list of soldier boys I promised the USO I'd write letters to and ask her if she'd mind writing instead on account of I hurt my hand and can't. Uh, what did you do, put it in your mouth while you were talking? No, I folded it into a folding bed, and it wouldn't have been so bad, only I was in it myself at the time. Uh, (laughs) Well, it was the most horrible experience. I couldn't talk for hours. You couldn't, no. It wasn't that too bad. (laughs) Well, you give this list to Margie, won't you? I know she won't mind it. Just a few names. Well, goodbye now, Mr. Gildersleeve, and take my advice. Keep away from folding beds. Yes. When I get into a bed, it doesn't fold up. It just curls up. (laughs) Let me see that list. Just a few names, eh? Wow, her idea of a few names is like her idea of a few words. That family next door is beginning to get my goat. That's about the only thing they haven't been over to borrow so far, either. Next time they ask me for something, I'm going to say, Ah, good afternoon, Marjorie. Hello, Marjorie, my dear, I have a little patriotic job for you to do. Oh, what is it, Uncle Moore? Yeah, that girl next door, what's her name? Uh, Dilly or Daffy? Dottie? Uh, Dottie, that's her. She wants you to write letters to uh, this list of soldiers here. She can't because she had her hand squeezed in a folding bed. Oh, but Uncle Mort, I'm writing to so many soldiers already. It seems like I'm corresponding with half the army as it is. You are? But how did that happen? I was serving coffee to that troop train that was going to Cap Stover last week, and one of the detachments adopted me. Uh, adopted you? <laughs> well, I'm not exactly clear whether they adopted me or I adopted them. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the daughter of the regiment or the auntie of the anti-aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, very good. What happened? Well, they they voted me their parachute girl. Yeah. What do they mean, parachute girl? They mean I'm the girl they'd like most to drop in on. Uh... <laughs> and about 200 of them asked me to correspond with them. 200 letters? Couldn't you just write to them by squads? Uh, no, I guess not. There isn't much fun sharing a letter from a girl with 11 men and a corporal. <laughs> That's why I've been writing each of them personally. And is it a job? Oh, Uncle. Uh, I don't doubt it a bit, my dear. We should all do everything we can to make them happy, however. I wish there was some way I could help. Uh, do you think I could uh, bang out a few letters for you on the typewriter? Then you could sign your name? Well, I don't know. Would they look like a girl wrote them? Oh, of course. I'll type them very daintily. <laughs> <laughs> Say... We can put the whole family to work on this. Uh, Leroy! Uh, Bertie! Did you call me, Mr. Gilsley? Yes, where's Leroy? Here I am. What is it? Uh, look, look, everybody. Marjorie has more letters to write to the soldiers than she can shake a pen at. Now, the boys in camp always welcome a letter, but it means far more to them if it comes from a pretty girl. Oh, Mr. Gilsley. <laughs> Not you, Bertie. I'm talking about Marjorie. Oh. Yes. Now the rest of us will have to do a little ghost writing. Excuse me, that left me out. I ain't pale enough to do any ghost writing. <laughs> and besides, I got all I can handle writing to my own boyfriends in the service. Oh, well, all right, Bertie. Leroy, you'll help me, won't you? Each of us will take ten names and write letters as if we were Marjorie. Sure. I've always wanted to be one of those anyhow. You always wanted to be one of what, Leroy? A war correspondent, huh? <sighs> well, that's finished. Private George Butcher, Camp Stover. Dear Butch... How are you? I am fine. I hope you are fine, too. How was the journey to Camp Stover? As the guy in school said when he stuck his foot out into the aisle when the teacher was passing, I hope you enjoyed your trip. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Well, having nothing better to do, I wrote. And having nothing better to write, I will close. Tenderly yours, Marjorie Forrester. P.S. If you have any empty rifle shells, please send them, as my brother is making a collection. Ah, uh, this looks like it's going to be the best one yet. Let's see how it sounds. Dear John... <laughs> I take my pen in hand to thank you and your friends for selecting little me as the girl you'd like to visit most. I am not unmindful of the honor bestowed upon me, but I won't let it turn my pretty little red head. <laughs> it is indeed unfortunate that you are stationed so far from Summerfield. Otherwise, you could all come to dinner at our house some night, as I love to bake and cook. You know how we girls are. <laughs> well, since the shades of night are drawing near, I'd better close... As my Uncle Throckmorton thinks it's time for me to go to bed, sincerely yours, Marjorie Forrester. Well, there he is. Dear Willie, I got your letter yesterday and hastens to inform you that the next time you send me a letter without any postage stamps on it, don't send it air mail special delivery. <laughs> I 
I'm sorry to fudge in the fried chicken I sent you got all mixed up together. But it saves me sending you any chocolate eggs for Easter. <laughs> I'm knitting you another sweater to replace the one you says you lost at the target range. Only next time, kindly confine your shooting to rifle practice. <laughs> because you never was any good at Paducah Parcheesi. <laughs> Yours truly, your ever-loving, everlasting, one and only, Bertie Lee Coggins. <laughs> P.S. Please disregard them rumors about me going out with other fellas. That's just enemy propaganda. <laughs> The mail? Oh, of course, my dear. Let's see, this is the last of March. Oh, yes, that means the June magazines are due. Oh, hello, Mr. Mailman. Say, I must have 150 letters for you. What's your niece doing, running a contest? Uh, I'm becoming a regular beast of burden. Oh, the male animal, eh? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> some more letters from the soldier boys, huh? Yes, and if this, those guys lick as many Japs as they do stamps, the war will be over Prado. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, so long. Oh, Marjorie, hmm? here's some answers to the letters we wrote to the Army. Good heavens. Oh, those for me? Yeah. yeah. Let me see. Business is certainly good, sis. Oh, I'll never be able to answer all of these in a month. Oh, we'll help you, won't we, Leroy? Yeah, let's start opening them. Yeah, all right. Be careful there. Yeah, now. okay. Listen to this. Dear Snooky. Oh, wait a minute, brother. Give me that letter. That one's not from the Army. Are you sure? <laughs> yes, that's, that's from a certain ensign in the Navy. And it's strictly personal. Oh, uh, yeah, I see. <laughs> well, we'll be true to the Army, won't we, Leroy? This one's from Camp Stover, all right. Let's see. Uh, dear Miss Forrester, thank you for that picture of your little brother. Picture of... What do you mean, picture of my little brother? Yeah, I ran out of snapshots of you, so I sent him one of me. <laughs> yes. No, I don't think he resembles you a bit. He sure is a funny-looking kid. What? <laughs> I'm sorry I can't send you any cartridge shells... Which you asked for, for his collection. What's this? Don't interrupt Uncle Mort. Yes, yes. But so far, I've been very busy here, acting as barber to a carload of raw potatoes. <laughs> Say, what kind of letters have you two been writing in my name? And now, Marjorie, don't fret. Look at all these letters. You can see we didn't use your name in vain. Why don't you run along downtown now, like you intended? Sure, we can clean up all this correspondence. Well, all right. Only remember, if you read any letters that turn out to be personal or private... Don't open them up. Why, of course, my dear. You can depend on us. How are we going to do that? <laughs> oh, come on, Uncle. Let's not burn our bridges till we come to them. You're a bright boy, Leroy. <laughs> All right, here's another letter. Huh? Dear Miss Forrester, uh, thanks for the wonderful map of the world you sent me. It comes in especially handy because current events is my hobby. Oh. Do you think girls are interested in the serious type of young man such as I represent? Sincerely, Ernest Darling. I'll take care of Darling as soon as I've read this postcard. Hello, Red. Thanks for the swell picture of yourself. It sure ghouled me, toots. From now on, I'm going to devote my non-military career to whistling under your window. Do you think you could go for me in a big way? Yours with a jive, Mickey Conway. You Gee! I'll answer that one, too. As soon as I get the other one out of the way. The one to... Uh, what's his name? You mean Ernest Darling? Yes. Now, what did he say? Uh, he thanks you for the map. All right. Uh, dear uh, Darling, 
I'm glad you like the man. Uh, if, what next? Uh, current events is his hobby. Oh, yes. And I am happy to learn you have taken up uh, such a fascinating hobby. He wants to know are girls interested in the serious type. Oh. And in answer to your last question, darling, the answer is uh, most certainly yes. There. Take it, Leroy, and address an envelope. Yes, sir. Uh, and address another one to Mickey Conway. Uh, you better find an asbestos envelope. I'm going to send him a hen track hotfoot. <laughs> uh, hello? Maine, 4181. Yes? One moment. Long distance is calling. Long distance. Go ahead, camp's over. Okay. Uh, hello. Is this Marge? No, it's her uncle. She's out at present. Gee, I just got three days' leave and I was coming to see you tomorrow. I was going to show up about eight. Oh, well, she'll be here. Why don't you come earlier? Say about six. Oh, well, sure, okay. Uh, just tell her Mickey Conway's coming. All right, Mickey. <laughs> it's you, eh? Didn't you get Marjorie's letter? Sure. That's why I'm coming. Why, I even bought a ring. After that letter that I, uh, that she wrote? Sure. Why, that did the trick. I wrote thanking her for a picture. And she wrote back. Dear darling, I'm glad you like the map. Oh, my goodness, Leroy got the envelopes mixed up. <laughs> and when I says I'm going to make a career out of whistling under her window, she replies, I'm happy to learn you've taken up such a fascinating hobby. Oh, I see it all now. <laughs> and here's the topper. I says, could you go for me in a big way? And she says, darling, darling the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, goodbye, Uncle. I'll be seeing you at six tomorrow. And to think that I am responsible for this one-sided romance. We'll hear from the great Gildersleeve again in just a moment. But first, I suppose you know that good nourishment isn't just a matter of eating a lot. Why, you can overeat and still be undernourished. That's why you should know the nutrition facts about the foods buy. So you can serve your family a balanced diet. So here are the nutrition facts about parquet margarine. The delicious spread for bread made by Kraft. First, parquet margarine is a wholesome vegetable margarine. Made of selected American farm products in Kraft's thick and span modern plants. That's important. You want to be sure the foods you serve are wholesome and of fine quality. Next, parquet margarine is a nourishing energy food. In fact, it's one of the best energy foods you can serve. That's important, too. Parquet helps give the pep and energy you need for hard work or play. Lastly, parquet margarine is a reliable year-round source of vitamin A. Yes, there are 9,000 units of this important vitamin in every single pound. So next time you shop, remember that economical parquet margarine is as nutritious as it is delicious. Yes, parquet is well worth trying right away. So tomorrow, ask your food dealer for parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y. Parquet margarine, made by Kraft. And now back to the great Gildersleeve. At six o'clock the following morning, and our heroes fallen asleep at last after spending most of the night counting soldiers. Uh, dear General, won't you come over for dinner? Bring your Jeep along to... Respectably yours, Throckmorton P. Marjorie. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, 
What's that? Oh, time to get up already. Where is that alarm clock? Oh, there you are. What's the matter with this clock? It won't stop. Oh, it's a telephone. Oh, Ooh, that floor is cold. <laughs> Where are my slippers? Oh, the heck with them. All right, all right, I'm coming. Yes, I heard you, operator. I'm hurrying. Hello? If, hello, anybody want me? Must be the wrong number. Somebody's got a lot of nerve not telephoning me at this time of the morning. Ooh, it's cold. Ew, which way is my bed? Hello? What is this, games? Hello, operator? Wait a minute, how can the bell ring with the receiver off the hook? Oh, I know, it's a doorbell. <laughs> Hold your horses, I'm coming. Yes, what is it? Is this where Miss Marjorie Forrester lives? Uh, yes. Well, uh, I'm Private Mickey Conway, and I was told to be here at 6. If 6? Oh, my goodness, is it 6 p.m. already? Well, no, sir, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. If what? Who told you to come here at this hour? I'm Marjorie's uncle. I'll break his... Oh, my goodness, that's me. <laughs> what did you say your name is? I'm Mickey Conway. Yeah, I was afraid of that. Come on in, Mickey. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, sit down. I'll see if Bertie, our cook, is up on the stove with a pot of coffee yet. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable. Uh, good morning, Bertie. Uh, quick, some coffee. It's almost ready, Mr. Gillespie. What gets you up so early? Uh, a soldier who's fallen for Marjorie because of some letters I've written in her name. Oh, you better be careful. He'll sue you for the breaches of the promises. <laughs> this fellow got the wrong letter, that's all, Bertie. And now he's here to propose to Marjorie. But he can't do that now. She's sound asleep. It, I won't let him do it if she wakes up, either. Well, what you gonna do, Mr. Gilsey? Well, it's too early in the morning for me to figure things out. I can't have an open mind without some good shut-eye. Then why don't you go on back to bed? That huh? soldier's probably tired, too. Let him take a nap in your den while you figure this whole thing out on your pillow. Well, Bertie, that's a wonderful idea. How did you ever come to think of it? <laughs> well, I could tell the truth. I need a little more beauty sleep myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's ten o'clock, and Marjorie should be down soon. I remember, Leroy, and you too, Bertie. We mustn't leave those two alone together. But I still don't see why, If huh? we do, he'll start proposing to Marjorie. It'll be very embarrassing for all concerned. Yes, and especially for you. If... But wouldn't it be a lot simpler, Unc, if we were to tell Marjorie what it was all about? You mean how you put Private Darling's letter in Private Conway's envelope and vice versa? Well, on second thought, maybe your way is better, Unc. Yeah. Well, Jigger, here comes Marjorie now. Good morning, everybody. Well, hello, my dear. How lovely you look this morning. Yeah, you look swell to me, too, sis. <laughs> That's right. And you certainly gonna look good to that soldier who came 300 miles just to pop the... Ixnay, Ernie Bay, Ixnay. Just to pop what, Bertie? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all, Miss Marge. But I'm interested. Pop what? Yes. Uh, well, that is... Uh, uh, if he walked 300 miles, he probably gonna pop his corn. <laughs> Seems to me you're all acting a little peculiar. Why well, the idea? I I sure. Well, maybe not, but you've got three of the fishiest-looking pans I've seen outside of a seafood grotto. <laughs> Say, I had a small rest, Mister Gil. Oops. Well, don't tell me this is Marge. Well, hiya there, Red. Uh, hi. 
Who is it, Uncle Mort? Uh, why, Marjorie, you remember Private Mickey Conway, who wrote you all those nice letters. Who? Uh, Ouch. Oh, oh. Oh, yes, how are you, Mr. Conway? Oh, now, baby, cut out that Mr. stuff. I'm just plain Mickey to you. Yes, he's just a plain Mickey to all of us. <laughs> He came all the way from Camp Stover to spend the day with you. Uh, with me. Uh, with us, I mean. <laughs> now, uh, what do we do first? Well, uh, first, I'd like to have a quiet little confidential talk with Marge here. Uh, oh, not on an empty stomach, Mickey. Where's your sense of romance? Oh, well, uh, all right. Uh, well, let's have some breakfast first. Yes. But uh, right after that, I got something to show her. What is it, Uncle Mort? Well, he wants to show you the town. I mean, uh, we want to show him the town, don't we, Marjorie? Oh, oh, yes, of course we do. Uh, Suppose I take him out for a ride this morning. Why, fine. We'll all take him for a ride. Say, uh, <laughs> uh, would you uh, care to drive, Mickey? Huh, what a rabbit eat cabbage. Would, would, oh, I see. That's uh, very cute. <laughs> you can drive our car, and I'll sit next to you, just to show you how the gears shift and where to put on the brakes. And uh, Marjorie, yes? you can sit in the back seat with Leroy. <laughs> all except Mickey and me. Well, that just leaves Mr. Gillsleeve and Leroy. You're right. We tried to leave them a dozen times. What's the matter? Did they chaperone you too vigorously? They didn't chaperone us, Bertie. They convoyed us. <laughs> Why, every time Mickey opened his mouth, Uncle Mort put his foot in. What they doing now? Oh, Uncle Mort showing Mickey our family album in the living room. Oh, great stars. Anything wrong? Oh, I'll say there is. I better get in there before they come to my baby pictures. <laughs> and this one is Marjorie at the age of one, I think. Fat little rascal, wasn't she, Mickey? Oh, boy. Yeah, cute dimples, huh? I'll say. Well, let me get a good look. Yeah. Boy, was she fat. <laughs> oh, don't you dare. I want to see that picture. Uh, oh. Oh, well, that's all right. <laughs> Go right ahead. Uh, oh, then you don't mind? Not in the least. Only that isn't me. It isn't? Then who is it? It happens to be you, Uncle Moore. What? <laughs> Where's my mustache? Oh, well, that's right. <laughs> Say, uh, yeah. uh, Uncle Mort, yeah. if, uh, if it's all the same to you, uh, could I have a minute alone with Red here? If, if you uh, want to be alone? That's the general idea, General. Well, uh, how about it? Why, of course, I understand. <laughs> all right, but only a minute, mind you. Bertie, quick, get in there and do something. Yeah, but what? Anything. Uh, don't leave them alone till someone relieves you. Just uh, move the piano, dust under the rug. <laughs> Play the Star Spangled Banner. What does it matter? Yes, sir. Play What Does It Matter? <laughs> oh, how do I get myself into these messes? Oh, now there's somebody at the door. As if I didn't have enough to do already. Here's a mail, Mr. Gildersleeve. I've got a gob for Marjorie, too. No, thanks. She has a soldier in the living room already. <laughs> Dear, I'd better get Leroy warmed up to go in for Bertie. Leroy! Where is that boy? Leroy! Here I am, Uncle Look, Leroy, Bertie is in there pinch-hitting for me. I don't know how soon she'll strike out, so you better be ready to go in there and see that Mickey doesn't get to first base. Well, uh, what about you, Uncle? I've got a telephone for reinforcements. But I'm so desperate, I'm going to invite Judge Hooker to dinner. Gee, are things that bad? Yep. <laughs> Leroy, he'll just talk and talk and talk. If he runs down, you ask him what he did in the Spanish-American War. That's good for two hours. Yeah, but it's three hours till dinner. 
That's the problem, my boy. Oh, Mr. Gildersleeve. Are you home, Mr. Gildersleeve? Gee, that Gabby gal from next door. Yes, there's the answer to our problem. I'm coming, Dottie. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late for dinner. A fine time to come here for dinner, 8 o'clock. And you're a fine friend to depend on, Judge Hooker. Now, wait a minute. I won't wait another minute. We waited as long as we could, then we had our dinner. You mean you didn't wait for me? No, that girl from next door took your place, Judge. What delayed you? I had a puncture with that rubber strainer you gave me for an inner tube. (laughs) That wasn't a strainer. That tube was made out of the finest reclaimed Gildersleeve girdles. Why? You, you big blowfish. What? And after I've been hauling you to town every day on my poor thin tires, I've got a good notion to punch you. Judge Hooker, you couldn't punch your way out of a bag of marshmallows. Guess I'll have to show you. I'd polish you off with one uppercut, only I can't decide which chin to aim for. Oh, yes? Well, you twitch one eyebrow at me, Hooker. And the first eight girls won't know where to begin. Is that so? Yes, that's all. Well, I'll let it start. Yes, yeah, I... Hooker, what's going on here? Oh, your uncle swindled me out of a lot of free rides. Serves you right for standing me up when I needed you here to keep that soldier from proposing to Marjorie. What? Yeah, she doesn't know. <laughs> and this is all your fault, Hooker. Marjorie, let me explain. Some letters were sent to the wrong soldiers, and he thought that you... Uh, uh, oh, it's too involved. Mickey wants to marry you. Oh, is that what he's been trying to say all day? Well, he had me worried. I thought he was trying to tell me that my slip was showing. <laughs> hey, Uncle Mickey, I'd like to talk to you, private. Oh, I might as well do the other half of the job. Send him in. Now, Judge, you and Marjorie go out the other door. Okay, Gildy. Come on, my dear. Do you think Bertie has anything left over from dinner? If she has, you'll have to fight the cat for it. <laughs> oh, hello, Mickey. Uh, gee, Mr. Gillisleeve, uh... This is awful embarrassing to say, but... Do you mind not telling Marjorie about our engagement? What? Well, you see, I guess I changed my mind. Now I'm nuts about this little dotty gal from next door. Gee, she isn't as pretty as Marjorie, but I get a chance to talk to her. You do? Yeah, and she's such a wonderful conversationalist. I'll grant her that. Well, maybe it's all for the best, Mickey. You and Dottie run along now, and lots of luck. <laughs> You're going to need it. Oh, gee. Oh, thanks, Mr. Gildersleeve. Hey, Dottie, come on. Let's get out of this dump. Oh, yes. well, Mickey, I have to go. Yeah, well, I knew everything would come out all right. Uncle, huh? look at this telegram that just came for me. It's from some um, Captain Earl Eby at Camp Stover. Oh, Captain Eby. Well, I've been corresponding with him. Oh, for you, of course. Uh, what does it say? Um, Dear Marjorie... Hooray, we are being transferred to Summerfield. Mm-hmm. Since you frequently requested the pleasure of my company for dinner at your home, I'm happy to accept for tomorrow night on behalf of my entire company and myself. Oh, this is going to be one of my bad weeks. <laughs> the Great Gildersleeve will be with us again in a few minutes. But right now, here's an experiment I wish every one of you would make. You see, I've been telling you how delicious parquet margarine is. But wouldn't it be better if you found it out yourself? So here goes. Next time you bake hot biscuits or rolls or make some toast, have a pound of parquet margarine handy. Then spread them while they're still piping hot with plenty of parquet. Now that's a real test for any spread because the heat brings out its flavor. Yes, you can tell right away how good parquet margarine is. Parquet's flavor is delicate, not strong. It's a tempting, satisfying flavor. 
Then try parquet margarine in your cooking, too. Use it for baking and pan frying. You'll find that a spread as delicious as parquet margarine makes cooked foods tastier, too. Remember, no matter how you use parquet margarine, you're serving your family a wholesome, nourishing, energy food. A food that's a reliable year-round source of vitamin A. So why not try these simple tests and prove to yourself how deliciously good parquet margarine is? Yes, get a trial pound or two of economical parquet margarine tomorrow. But be sure to ask your food dealer for parquet. P-A-R-K-A-Y. Parquet margarine. Made by Kraft. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish all of you would take a tip from your Uncle Mort and do something for your Uncle Sam. Buy more United States government bonds and stamps. There's no finer investment in the world today, for in every way they protect our future. Our choice is clear. Which do we want? Our country's bonds or those of the Axis? Good night. Original music heard on this program was composed and conducted by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to be with us again next week at this same time for the further adventures of The Great Gildersleeve. This program has come to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Here's the American breed for Partridge Wieners. Partridge, it's just behind my smile. That's why I eat partridge. Hot dogs, they're the top dogs I love. And you love them too. Partridge wieners are so much fun. They're a smile for everyone. Cause partridge wieners are present The Shadow. These half-hour dramatizations are designed to forcibly demonstrate to old and young alike that crime does not pay. Before the final broadcast of this Shadow series begins, keep this fact in mind, homeowners. One way to be sure of maintaining steady, even temperatures throughout your home during these changeable days and nights of March and April weather is by burning blue coal. Blue coal is America's finest anthracite. It gives perfect, dependable warmth and stops overheating or quick chilling of rooms. Remember the name Blue Coal for better heat with less furnace attention in all kinds of weather. And be sure to hold on at the close of today's shadow story, for we have an unusual treat in store for you. The shadow, mysterious character who aids those in distress and helps the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the unseen voice belongs. Today's story, Can the Dead Talk? Oh, 
Oh, good afternoon, Miss Lane. Hello, Angel. Mr. Cranston in? Uh, yes, Miss Lane. I want you... Hello, Margot. Hurry up, Lamont. We'll be late for Aunt Eliza's big charity benefit. She's been working on it for the last six months. Now, come on. No, all right. Get my coat, Ames, please. Yes, sir. Honestly, Lamont, you're acting like a little boy who doesn't want to go to dancing school. Let's probably enjoy it. This man, Valtan, is supposed to be very good. Margot, I don't like mind readers. He isn't a mind reader. He calls himself a mentalist. Well, it means the same thing to me. Well, I understand. He's fascinating. When he's not performing on the stage, he goes around exploding the mists of haunted houses and things like that. He doesn't believe in ghosts. Oh, my... Your coat, sir. My coat? Oh, oh yes. Thanks, thanks. Listen, Margot, I've got to be back at 6 o'clock. There's a polo match at the armory tonight. And I... Yes, yes, I know. I've got a front row seat. And you needn't act like such a martyr. If I can spend the evening watching you trying to break your silly neck playing croquet on horseback, it won't hurt you to go with me this afternoon and have your mind improved. <laughs> Deliver me from a logical woman. <laughs> Very well. Lead on, Macduff. And now I will proceed with my next experiment. See, Lamont, I told you we'd be late. It started already. I'll sit back here and make this as painless as possible. Certain of you in the audience have written on the slips of paper that my assistant distributed questions you would like me to answer. Now, if you will concentrate on what you have written, I will try to get these questions by thought transfer. But remember, you must concentrate. I must be in complete accord with your thoughts. I get the initials. E.K. Someone with the initials E.K. wants to know the date of her marriage. I think it was... Yes, I'm sure it was. March 24th, 1903. Is that right? Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Did you hear that, Lamont? He's marvelous, don't you think? That's an understatement. Oh, don't be so superior. Everybody, please concentrate. I cannot conduct this experiment in thought transference without sympathetic cooperation from my audience. Now... Now I get the initials BDM. BDM wants to know the street, number, and city where he was born. The street is Walnut. The number, 2124. The city, Philadelphia. Am I right? Gee, he got it. He's marvelous. How do you suppose he does it? Elementary, my dear Watson. Wait, please. Before I proceed further, I feel that in this room there is someone who is not only an unbeliever, but one who is distinctly hostile to me and what I am trying to do. Dear Lamont, he must mean you. Nonsense. Probably part of it. I would like that person to attempt a little experiment with me. If he or she will think of something, some question, the answer to which is known to no one else, I will attempt to answer it correctly without the person having written the question down at all. If I can answer it correctly, it should prove to the skeptic that the transference of thought from one mind to another is completely possible. Nice trick if we can do it. You don't think it's possible, Lamada? I won't say it's impossible, but it's certainly highly unlikely. Well, think of something and concentrate on it and see if you can get it. I will not. In the first place, you don't know that I was the one he was referring to. In the second place, even if I were, I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. You think of something that no one could possibly know but yourself. I'll bet you 100 to 1 he can't get it. Well, perhaps you're right. Quiet, please. Quiet. Someone in the audience is concentrating on the question, who is the shadow? Margo. Did you think of that just then? Yes, but I don't know why. It just seemed to come into my head. Not you I don't... will answer that question. No. No, on second thought, I believe I will not give the answer after all. Unless I am very much mistaken, the shadow himself is present. And I don't believe this is just the time to remove his veil of secrecy. However, in case the shadow thinks this is merely a sham, I would like to inform him that within an hour... He'll receive a cablegram from someone he never heard of. 
What, what do you suppose that means? I haven't the slightest idea. I will idea. now proceed with the questions that have been written on the papers. Someone whose initials are LTV wants to know the number of a license plate on his car. Oh, Lamont, let's get out of here. You can go if you like, my dear Margot. But I'm going to stay till the end. For heaven's sake, why? After the performance, I think the shadow will pay a little call on Mr. Volton. I'm consumed with a burning desire to find out just what he knows. Close the door, Emil. I wish to dress. Yes, master. Remove my boots. Yes, master. Hey, careful, you clumsy fool. What's the matter with you? I'm sorry, Imbecile, go. Leave me alone. Yes, master. I will. Well, what's the matter? Master, the door. The doorknob turned. The door is opening. But the hall is empty. Ah, good afternoon. Won't you come in? Have you gone mad, master? There is no one here. You are wrong, Emil. There is someone here. But I see no one. Of course not. You may leave us alone, Emil. Yes, master. Well, Shadow. Well, Voltaire. Sit down, won't you? Unfortunately, I can't stay. I have an engagement. Really? Perhaps your engagement is with that well-known clubman, Mr. Lamont Cranston. Is Lamont Cranston a friend of yours? No. Matter of fact, we've just now met. Interesting. True. Why beat about the bush, Shadow? I know perfectly well that you are Lamont Cranston. Are you sure you haven't got me confused with someone else? Quite. Of course, at the moment, I admit I'm unable to see you, owing to a trick of visual hypnotics, which it is hardly worth my while to come back. However, your charming companion this afternoon, Miss Lane, wasn't it? Let her mind dwell on the subject quite intensely. Her thought waves were unmistakable. On second thought, I find I can spare you a few minutes, Voltan. <laughs> Good. My respect for your powers is increasing momentarily. Well, now that you know, what are you going to do about it? I haven't decided yet. Remember, I and I alone know that Lamont Cranston and the Shadow are one and the same, with the exception of your friend Margot Lane. Of course, you realize how much your life would be worth if the underworld should ever learn that you are the Shadow? I have a rough idea. And yet, that would be a pity. To terminate so unceremoniously the brilliant capabilities of one who is the Shadow is known and feared throughout the world. Just what are you getting at? Let me tell you a little story, my friend. Did you ever hear of Anton Proskovai? Anton Proskovai? The famous anarchist who at one time or another was kicked out of every country in Europe? That's the man... The last I heard of him was some ten years ago, when he was sent into exile. He's supposed to have died there. Anton Proskovai didn't die in exile. He escaped. But he dropped out of sight for ten years because he was making a study of that least understood attribute of mankind. The human mind. You mean you? Yes. I am Anton Proskovai. You, Anton Proskovai? The man without a country? I do not need a country. What do you mean? Shadow, when I started my studies of the brain, I quickly found that people mentally are like sheep. They can be influenced, swayed in any direction by a mentality stronger and superior than their own. Of course. That's nothing particularly new. Wait, wait. After I had made my escape for years, I wandered, living in ditches, eating in pigsties, hounded from country to country by government agents. But all the time, I was collecting subjects. Subjects? Yes, Shadow. Among the submerged, ill-used, half-starved rabble of every nation, there are potential leaders. Leaders who, given the opportunity, could be the dictators of tomorrow. Go on. 
These men, I know. I know them so intimately that from wherever I am, I can control their minds. You saw Emil, my servant. He is completely subjugated to my will. But that's hypnotism. Relatively simple. Not at all. It is not hypnotism. Although I dominate Emil's mind whenever I wish, to all appearances, he is a normal human being. He can be released only if I feel fear. And I am never afraid. Only if you feel fear. I put the idea of the shadow's identity in Miss Lane's mind this afternoon. After which she unknowingly, yet obligingly, answered it mentally. Come in. Excuse me, Master. I have a cablegram here. It is addressed to someone called the Shadow in your care. Yes. I will take it and see that it's delivered. Go now. Yes, Master. You see, Shadow? You mean... On the platform this afternoon, I willed one of my subjects in Europe to cable you, saying, the downtrodden shall arise. Here, I will open your cablegram. I'll put it on the table where you can see it. Well, what does it say? The downtrodden shall arise. Well, that's amazing. Now do you believe me, Shadow? Through my subjects who are leaders themselves, I can control the vast mass mind of the rabble. The bulk of the population of the world. I suppose it's possible at that. Possible? Listen, Shadow. I have decided that in exactly one week, a vast uprising which I have so carefully planned for years will take place. Governments will be overthrown. Nations will exist no more. Chaos will reign. Yes, it could be done. It will be done. Why are you telling me this? Because on the threshold of releasing this world-shattering force, I hesitate. Why, Voltan? Because I and I alone can bring this chaos about. But after it's accomplished, then what? How can I control what I have created? Somewhat of a problem, I should think. Yes. I need another mind to share the responsibility. A mind which already has superhuman powers that I could train to assist me in the great work of reorganizing the world. And you want me to join you, is that it? Why not? Shadow between us, we could rule the world. Suppose I refuse. Then... I shall be forced to divulge the secret of your identity to those who would be most interested, after which I shall proceed with my plans alone. I see. But you won't refuse. Join forces with me, Shadow. Next week we will plunge the world into chaos such as it has not known since the dawn of creation. A chaos over which you and I will reign supreme. Well, your answer? Give me 24 hours. Can you not answer me now? 24 hours. I will give you seven hours. That is time enough. Come to me at midnight tonight. Where will I find you? You know the old Murray Mansion in the slums over by the river? Of course. It's been boarded up for years. It's supposed to be haunted, I believe. Haunted? <laughs> yes. That's why I use it for my headquarters. A reputation for ghosts is very convenient for keeping away prying eyes. I will be waiting there for you tonight at midnight. And I advise you to come alone. <laughs> Oh, 
must assemble. The mud's fallen off. The pony's running loose. The mud's still on the ground. Here, help me with this barrier. I'm going to. Oh, David, I hope Hey, stand back. Come there. Get a doctor. He may be badly injured. Here, you go. Oh, Evelyn. Oh, Evelyn. He's hurt. He's lying there so still and white. Lamont, speak to me. Now, then, I take it easy. Here comes Dr. Carlson. Oh, thank goodness. He's Lamont's doctor. All right, stand aside, please. I'm a doctor. Oh, Dr. Carlson, thank God you've come. Do you think Lamont's hurt badly? Well, I can't tell you. I don't have to examine him. Well, what is it? Tell me, can't you? Miss Lane, I'd rather do anything in the world than tell you this. Oh. Lamont Cranston is dead. Oh. <laughs> Two of today's story commences in just a moment. But first, here's advice homeowners everywhere will certainly profit by following. Your nearest blue coal dealer has a real bargain for you. It's the John Barclay Summer Conditioning Service, a thorough cleaning and checkup job that'll put your heating plant in perfect shape for next fall and save you money on your fuel bill. This summer conditioning service includes cleaning all inside and outside surfaces, cleaning and reassembling the smoke pipe and sealing all openings at joints where the pipe joins the chimney. This service also includes a thorough check of all dampers, valves, pipes, and grates, plus the painting of all doors and surfaces. In fact, it gives you over ten vital money-saving jobs that will improve the efficiency of your furnace, all for the price of one. It's worth $12 and a half, yet it only costs approximately $5 for the average size home. So next month, or whenever you decide to let your furnace fire go out, Get in touch with your nearest blue coal dealer. Let him give your home heating plant, whether it's steam, warm air, or hot water, a thorough summer conditioner. You'll save time, trouble, and money in the long run. And remember, too, if you want steady, more dependable heat in your home throughout the changeable weather of early spring, order blue coal. You'll get better heat with less furnace attention. Future than even you suspect. Well, what's done is done. 
I must be going now. I beg pardon, sir. Uh, uh, I can find my way out. Oh, now, Margot, darling. Won't you please let me take you home? Angel will take care of everything here, won't you, Angel? Yes, miss. I'll get your things. Oh, all right, Evelyn. I suppose there's nothing more I can do tonight. I'll go. Good. And I'm going with you. Just to be sure you'll get there. <laughs> Almost midnight, Emil. You may leave me now. Master, are you sure you would rather not have me to stay here? Stay? No, you fool. Why should you stay? I do not know. I do not see how you can remain here alone, Master. Night after night. There is something about this old ruined house. It is evil. Nonsense. What's evil about it? In the neighborhood... They say it is haunted. They say the talk, ghost... Talk, That is all. There's no such thing as a ghost. To the trained mind, a ghost is an impossibility. Therefore, it does not exist. You understand? Yes, Master. I should be quite all right. What's that? Ah, just a loose shutter in the wind. Master is worried. I have never seen you so before. I've had rather an upsetting occurrence tonight. I must think things out. Go, Emil. Yes, master. The usual time in the morning. Of course. Now go. Yes, master. Yes, I go. Fool. Emil is an idiot. Trying to frighten me with this old woman's tale about ghosts. Ghosts do not frighten me. Nothing frightens me. If I knew fear, I couldn't hope to control the world. Ah, so now Lamont Cranston is dead. I must proceed alone. But I must hurry before anything else goes wrong. I will not wait a week. Tomorrow I shall call upon my subjects to arise and kill. Tomorrow. It's a pity the shadow is gone. I would have enjoyed it. I could have taught him so many things. What a magnificent conception. The shadow. <laughs> huh? What was that? I could have sworn I heard someone laugh. Oh. No one is here. No one could be here. Must have been in my mind. <laughs> That's right, Voltan. In your mind. Who's that? Who speaks? Is it possible you don't know me, Voltan? When just this evening you claimed to be one of my most intimate friends? Shadow. Or his ghost? No. No, it's not possible. Really? With my own eyes, I saw you lying dead. I know. So thoughtful of you to call. Stop! It can't be you! It can't! You hear me, don't you? Imagining things. My mind is overstrained, that's all. The shadow is dead. You see, it's midnight, Voltan. I have returned from the spirit world to keep our appointment. Spirit world? There is no such thing. There can't be. I won't allow myself to believe it. You're afraid, Voltan? No, no. I'm not afraid. You are afraid for the first time in your life. You're afraid. At last, the thousands of subjects you've held under your spell are liberated, are free. Who is there? It is Emil. You must remember me, Master. Your loyal servant, Emil. The one whom you've subjected to your indignities for so long. You've gone mad. Now, Voltan, it is you who have gone mad. And there is but one way to deal with a mad dog. Keep away from me, Emil. Don't come any closer. This gun. I will shoot. Drop that gun. Emil, 
I didn't mean it. Uh, stop him, Mir. Stop following me. You wounded me, Volcan. But before I die, I am going to kill you. I am not afraid of you anymore. You are afraid of me. No, don't touch me. Don't you. Man, he's dead. I. I am free. At last. It'll be dawn soon, Margot. I'm, I'm all right now, Evelyn. Why don't you go home yourself? You don't need to stay with me anymore. Well, if you're sure you're all right. Oh, of course I'm all right. I'll take a sedative and go to bed. Good, and get some rest. I could use some rest myself. Oh, you could. Well, if you want anything, don't hesitate to call me, Margot. If I don't hear from you, I'll drop over in the afternoon. All right, and thanks, Evelyn, for sticking by me. You've, you've been a great help. Oh, nonsense. Get some sleep, dear. I thought she'd never go. Oh. Oh, Margot. Don't you know me? Well, I'm not... I'm not. I must be dreaming. No, you're not dreaming. I'm here. But... Well, you... You were killed. No, I wasn't killed, Margot. Oh, Lamont. But I... I don't understand. I, I saw you lying there so cold and still. It was a trick, dearest. A matter of suspended animation. I wasn't even hurt. Well, then how... It's quite a common trick in India, and it's been done in this country on several occasions. I've never had need to use it before. Voltan forced me to. Well, how does it work? Well, I... I can best explain it by saying I threw myself into a cataleptic trance. My heart stopped. Everything stopped for a short time. <laughs> I had even fooled Dr. Carlson. It'll be an awful shock to him when he sees me alive and well. You mean you did it on purpose? Of course. I had to. And you didn't tell me? I could tell no one, Margot. Oh, Lamont, how could you? I know what a shock it must have been for you, darling, but believe me, there was no other way... It was vitally necessary that Lamont Cranston should be thought dead so that Voltan would keep his knowledge of the shadow's identity to himself until I had time to figure a way out. But Lamont, why didn't you tell me and spare me the suffering? I wouldn't have given you away. I didn't dare take the chance. Voltan might have read your thoughts. A sinister man, Margot, with some rather extraordinary mental capabilities. Would it surprise you to know that he had perfected plans for a world revolt? He had? You mean he... Yes. Voltan is dead. As the ghost of the shadow, I faced him tonight in a haunted house. When he thought his mental powers were going back on him, he shot his servant, who very conveniently strangled Voltan before he died, too. How terrible. Oh, I don't think so, Margot. There's quite enough unrest among nations today without the machinations of an insane mental genius. Yes, I think the world will be a great deal better off without Mr. Voltan. It's a pity that others with a like capacity for stirring up trouble can't meet the same fate. And now, friends, we have a real treat in store for you. I want you to meet two grand actors. Our stars, Margot Lane, who in reality is the charming Agnes Moorhead, and Lamont Cranston, who's known in real life as Bill Johnstone. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Well, Margot, <laughs> I should say Agnes, I know you'll agree with me that it's been a great privilege for you and me to have played the roles of Margot Lane and The Shadow for the past six months. Yes, it has, Bill, and it's been a lot of fun besides. I can't begin to tell you how much I've appreciated being with The Shadow during his exciting adventures. 
And I know that we appreciate the generous cooperation we have received from our sponsors, the Blue Coal Dealers, in teaching young and old alike that crime doesn't pay. If we succeeded in driving home that moral, then we'll have accomplished our purpose. As Ken Roberts has told you, ladies and gentlemen, this is our final broadcast of the winter season. But we sincerely hope to be back with another series in the fall. Whether or not the shadow program returns is up to you, our listeners. In the theater, you know, we actors can tell by the applause if the audience enjoys our efforts to entertain them. But in radio, the only way to know whether or not the audience enjoys the entertainment is by their purchases of the product that makes the program possible. Or by their personal approval to the sponsors. So, friends, if you've liked this shadow series and want to hear the show again next fall, won't you phone or write your nearest blue coal dealer and let him know? Your purchases of blue coal and your phone calls to the blue coal dealers will indicate to them whether or not they should bring you the shadow program again in September. And now, on behalf of our entire cast, hearty thanks to you again for your loyalty to our show and your support of Blue Coal. Goodbye, Bill and Agnes. We hope you'll be back again in the fall. And friends, remember that you can continue to thrill to the adventures of the shadow during the summer months by getting the Shadow Magazine at your local newsstand. This is Ken Roberts saying goodbye for Blue Coal. Gunsmoke, brought to you by Chesterfield, America's most popular two-way cigarette. What a pair. Chesterfield king size at the new low price. Chesterfield regular. Around Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job that makes a man watchful and a little lonely. I wonder what Dodge would be like if there wasn't always a crowd moving up and down Front Street. Uh-huh. Just look at them. Everybody going somewhere. <laughs> well, there are a lot of them that aren't going anywhere at all, Chester. Just drifting. Yes, sir, I guess you're right at that, Mr. Dillon. I know when I first come to Dodge, I sure didn't have nothing in mind. Leastwise, working for a U.S. Marshal like you. Oh, you must have had some reason to come here, Chester. Well, a backwards-like reason, maybe. Huh? What do you mean? Well, it's like it wasn't to come here as much as it was to leave there. What? I say it's like it wasn't to come here 
as much as it was to leave there. Oh, oh you mean Texas? Yes, sir. Oh, oh. why? Mr. Dillon, Texas is mostly populated by my family. I got relatives, thick and thin relatives, all over Texas. Oh, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Why, it's like having somebody looking over your shoulder all the while to make man spooky. Well, sir, I choose to do my sinning where nobody don't know me. Hello, Matt and Chester. Well, hi, Doc. Where are you headed for, Doc? No place, Matt. I'm just walking around. Now, you see, Chester? See what I mean? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, now, what's the matter with just walking around? Does a man have to be going someplace every minute? <laughs> anyway, you're a fine pair to be criticizing people. Sitting here like a couple of fat horny toads in the now, sun. Now, slow down, Doc. Slow yeah. down. You're burning up all your fuel. Well, who's this fellow? Which one of you men's Doc Adams? I am. Come on, I got a job for you. Well, is that so? But you don't look very sick, mister. It ain't me, it's a man in camp. Camp? A couple of miles up the Arkansas, we're holding the trail herd there. What part of Texas you from, mister? We got 3,000 head of San Saba Longhorn. And it's been a plum miserable drive all the way, and I ain't no temper to answer any more fool questions. All right, then, don't answer. Now, hold up a minute there, young fella, now... Uh, what's the matter with this man of yours? You'll see when you get there. Well, tell me now, else how will I know what to take? Look, Doc, it wasn't my idea to come get you. Ken Talley made me come. Uh, and who's uh, Ken Talley? The trail ball. Now, you ready to go? Well, you tell me what's wrong with the man, and I'll go. Doc. What? Um, I think I'll ride out with you. Who are you? My name's Dillon. Oh, you're the marshal here, ain't you? That's right. Well, we don't need no marshal out there. Chester, go get our horses, huh? We'll ride out with Doc. Yes, sir. I brought the Doc, Ken. How many doctors they got in Dodge anyway, Choke? That's the Doc there. Well, who are these other two? My name's Matt Dillon, Sally. This is Chester Proudfoot. How do you do, Mr. Talley? Dillon, huh? Well, I didn't send for you, Marshal. Yeah, I know you didn't. And what are you doing here? That's a sick man lying in the blanket over there by the fire. You can get mounted and ride right back to Dodge, all three of you. We don't need Doc no more. Oh, no, you don't, mister. If that man's sick, I'm going to take a look at him. He's all right, Doc. Forget him. Come on, Doc. Well, Doc? He's dead, man. Mighty contagious disease, too. Oh? I found that when one man gets shot, it usually leads to somebody else getting shot sooner or later. Who killed this man, Tully? How'd it happen? I don't figure it's none of your business, Marshal, but since you're so nosy, I'll tell you. He shot himself. That's a lie. He couldn't have shot himself. Why not, Doc? Because he was shot in the back. Uh-huh. You gonna tell me who did it, Tully? No, Marshal. I ain't gonna tell you nothing. Tully, your man Chote here told us that you've had a hard drive up from the San Sabbath. Hard? We fought Indians and thieving Kansas Jayhawkers and bad weather and stampedes a whole way, Marshal. But we're still ready to fight Dodge City if we have to. Well, you've been through a lot, Tully, and I know how edgy it's made you. All of you. But this man's been murdered, and i got to have the murderer. His name's Bud Cowan. Whose name? Him. There. 
Who killed Bud Cowan? It's no use, Marshal. I got 18 Texas cowboys here. Well, 17, and ain't a one of them that'll talk. Look, Teller, you're a responsible man, or you wouldn't be trail boss. Now, you know what the law means. You know what it's for. Kansas law ain't for Texans, Marshal. We'll fight our own snake. I'm not a Kansas, Marshal. I'm a United States Marshal, but the law's the same. It don't matter. No Texan's gonna get hung in Kansas, leastwise not as long as I'm around. And there ain't a thing you can do about it, Marshal. Yes, there is. Like what? You meant a kind of hankering to buck the tiger in Dodge, aren't they? Oh, say, uh, for three months ain't talked to nothing else. So if they don't get the Dodge, they're going to be mighty unhappy, and maybe one or two of them will decide to talk. Marshal, how are you going to keep 17 juiced-up Texas cowboys out of Dodge? They'll ride right over you. No, I can't keep them out, Tully, but I can fix it so there won't be anything for them when they get there. What do you mean? I'll close Front Street, every saloon, every gambling table, every store. I'll close them up tight. You do that? And if you knew me well enough, you wouldn't ask. Come on, Doc. Chester... You think it over, Charlie. What a pair. What a buy. King size Chesterfield. Now at the new low price. And Chesterfield regular. They're the quality twins. The same highest quality. The same low nicotine. Either way you like them, you get the same wonderful taste and mildness. A refreshing smoke every time. Change to Chesterfield. America's most popular two-way cigarette. Yes, the Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made. What a pair. Chesterfield regular. Chesterfield king size. They satisfy millions. They're best for you. Sure didn't take long for the word to get around, did it, Mr. Dillon? Ken Tolley followed us to town yesterday, Chester. He's smart enough to know how the businessmen would react. You mean he come in here and told them all about it? Yeah, of course he did. Well, hello, Marshal. Hello, John. Well, here's the Dodge house, Chester. You better wait out here. Okay, sir. Mr. Green said they'd be waiting for you right in the lobby. Yeah. Well, what can I do for you, Mr. Green? Well, yeah. well, no, it's quiet, gentlemen, please. I'll do the talking. Marshal Dillon, as you can see, most of Dodge's leading businessmen are present here. Miss Tompkins, Mr. Jonas, Mr. Botkin, Mr. Teeters. Yes, sir. And I'm here as owner of the Dodge house. Marshal... You know why we're here as well as we do. Because I told Ken Tully I'd close Front Street. Huh? Exactly. And we won't stand for that, Marshal. 
We need that Texas money, and we're going to get it. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. A man was murdered out of that camp. Oh, he was just some Texas cowboy, Marshal. The prosperity of Dodge is certainly more important than him. Don't you agree, gentlemen? Now, wait a minute. You mean that you so-called good citizens of Dodge are putting a few dollars above the value of the law? Even above the value of a human life? Don't preach to us, Marshal Dillon. All the men you've killed. Mr. Green, I never killed a man in my life except in the performance of duty or in self-defense. All right. All right, that's not important. We're wasting time, gentlemen. I'm hired to enforce the law, and I'm going to do it any way I see fit. Now, is that clear? Well, then we'll complain about you, Marshal. Sure will. We'll all write letters to Washington and have you fired. You will, huh? Good. Fine, that's fine. And maybe I can get a little sleep for a change. Start walking around like an ordinary man instead of jumping at shadows thinking somebody's about to shoot me any minute. Yeah, go ahead. And maybe I can afford to have a few friends again. Instead of everybody looking at me sideways like I was some kind of a rattlesnake. Gentlemen, I might not have to kill anybody again as long as I live. Yeah, yeah, go on. Write your letters. You'll be doing me a great big favor. Oh, just one more thing. There's just about enough money in this job of mine to pay for my ammunition. But I'm still going to close up Front Street. say to Mr. Green and them other men yesterday? Huh? Why? Oh, I don't know. I'm just curious. Well, I said the same thing that you'd say, Chester. At least I hope you would. Oh, yes, of course I would. And I sure do thank you, Mr. Dillon. I'm mighty proud to have you say that. <laughs> but you don't know what I told them, Chester. Oh, it don't matter. I trust you. You know what you're doing. Well, thank you, Chester. I'm glad somebody thinks so. Well, of course, I, I've seen you make mistakes sometimes. Well, I mean, a way ain't perfect much. It, it, it's a simple thing for anybody. Uh, uh, well, why don't you go on to the depot and pick up the mail, Chester? Huh? Yes, sir, by going that right Santa Fe just come in over an hour ago. And I... Good morning, Marshal. Well, Ken Sully. Marshal, this here Sam Peoples have brought with me. Huh? Hello, people. Hello. Marshal, I done a lot of thinking the last day or so. No. Yes, sir. I've decided you're right about the law and all. So I went and brought Sam Peoples in. You mean he killed that man, Bud Cowan? He sure did. And these five cowboys have witnessed it, Marshal, including myself. All be glad to testify at the trials any time you say. Is that right, people? 
Did you kill Bud Cowan? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, what happened to your face? Fall off a horse or something? Yes, sir. I, I come loose off in the Bronx. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Okay, lock him up, Chester. All right, sir. Everything all right now, Marshal? Well, I'll let you answer that, Tully. <laughs> no hard feelings on my side. Just don't let him get away now. One murder is all I can produce for you. <laughs> See you later, Marshal. Well, come on, people. The cells is out back here. Uh, wait a minute, Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, bring him back here, huh? Peoples, tell me something. Are you a Texan? No, sir, I ain't, Marshal. And what are you doing with that San Saba outfit? Well, I run into them when they was bringing their cattle across the Cimarron, sir. They hired me on just for grub. And I wanted to get to Dodge real bad. Yeah, I see. That uh, bronc you fell off of yesterday, did he drop on your face? Yes, sir. Well, sort of. I'd sure like to see that horse. You would? Yeah. It'd be kind of interesting to see a horse that's got hooves like a man's fist. Yes. There's not much you can do about this, is there? No, sir. They're all going to swear I done it. Do you know who did? No, sir. I don't. I, I was out riding herd when it happened. And none of them fellas ever talked to me much anyways. Well, you're in a tough spot. Yes, sir. Unless I can find out who did kill Bud Cowan, you're going to have to stand trial. But I'll do what I can for you, if that happens. Thank you, Marshal. But I, I don't guess there's much anybody can do. All them fellas testifying. Well, we'll see. Uh, go get him something to eat, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. Uh, I'll be out on the street. Ken Tully's men are going to be feeling free to do about anything. I could picture Tully and his men when he got back to camp, laughing at how they'd put it over on me and the rest of Dodge. I figured Mr. Green and his businessmen had talked to Tully, but I was sure they didn't know Sam Peoples was an innocent man. And neither did they understand the kind of trouble that tampering with a law could lead to. For the Texans, the lid was off. They felt that they were running the town, that nothing could touch them. And all I could do was wait. So I went over to the Texas Trail and sat with Kitty for a while, watching the crowd. I'm glad you're here, Matt. Otherwise, I'd have to be drinking at the bar with one of those beat-up cowboys. Well, I hope I'm not costing you money, Kitty. You are, but I won't start. Anyway, it's better than trying to grin back at those cowboys. Well, those men have had a rough time coming up the trail, Kitty. Nobody asked them to come. No, I suppose not. You know, Matt, I've worked in a lot of places. Even the gold camps. Dodge is worse than any of them. Oh, is that so? Why? I don't know. Maybe the sun and the prairie take too much out of everybody. Seems like every man that comes to Dodge is out to get his own back somehow, even if he has to kill somebody to do it. 
Well, I guess I follow you, Kitty. All I'm saying is that maybe our hard life makes men kind of angry. They want to fight all the time. Well, something sure makes them want to fight. Or at least get drunk. <laughs> Look at them. Hey, who's that coming this way, man? Huh? Yeah. Now, that's Ken Tully, the San Saba trail boss. Well, he sure looks like he wants to fight. Yeah. Maybe he does, Kitty. I will soon see. We will return for the last act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. Tomorrow afternoon, almost 100,000 cheering people will pack Cleveland's Municipal Stadium for that great annual baseball classic, the All-Star Game. I guess there isn't a fan in the country who wouldn't like to be there. And you folks who are going will notice, towering above center field, the mammoth Chesterfield scoreboard. Now, if you visited the American League dugout tomorrow, you'd want to say hello to the Yankees' famous catcher, Yogi Berra. He's a Chesterfield smoker. Has been for seven years. And as he puts it, they're mild and they taste great. Yogi likes the regular size. Across the field in the National League dugout, there's another man you'd want to meet. The fabulous Stan the Man Musial of the St. Louis Cards. It stands 11th All-Star Game in his 11th year with Chesterfields. Now, he likes a long smoke, so he buys Chesterfield king signs. What a pair they are. Musial and Barra. And what a pair these are. Chesterfield king size at the new low price and Chesterfield regular. It's America's most popular two-way cigarette. Try Chesterfields yourself. They satisfy millions. They're best for you. Sally. You gonna introduce me to the lady? Nobody has to introduce anybody here, mister. My name's Kitty. Kitty, huh? Well, my name's Ken Tally. How about having a drink with me, Kitty? Sorry, I'm busy. Oh, come on. You ain't busy. You heard it, Tally. Go on back to the bar, huh? You're sure something, ain't you, Marshal? Why don't you get going? Okay. Okay, I'll go. Sure I will. Is he crazy or just drunk? I don't know, Kitty. Anyway, I'll bet he gets into trouble before the night's out. Well, if he does, there's plenty of room in jail for him. I take it you've already got a grudge against him. Yeah, I sure have. But it's not on my account. Huh? Who's? An innocent little fella called Sam Peoples. Sam Peoples? Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Like a fight starting. Yeah. You stay here, Kitty. I'll be on the floor in a minute. All right, hold it there. Hold it. What's trouble, Marshal? You and this man settle your differences some other way, Choke. I won't have any gunplay here. Gunplay? Well, we weren't fighting, Marshal. Was we, Jim? <laughs> no. 
We was just haranguing each other, so... <laughs> Me and Jim always talk like that, Marshal. Don't we, ma'am? <laughs> well, look at them, Marshal. Ken Tyler's running off with the gal. And I'll rub the rest of this bottle around in your face when you get up. All right, get out of the way, Kitty. Gladly, Matt. <laughs> I fooled you, didn't I, Marshal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You sort of fool me. Now, look at him, Marshal. All right, shut up. What? Marshal? Is Ada us here? You think you can whip all of us? No. No, I don't, Choke. Not eight of you. Well, then you're going to get whipped. Come on, man. Just stay where you are, all of you. I'd be a fool to mix in a brawl with all of you men. I don't aim to try it. Looks like you ain't got much choice, Marshal. And we're going to beat you about half to death. No, you're not. No? What's to stop us? Don't look like nobody in here is going to help you out. I'm carrying a gun, Chuck. Oh, that. That don't bother us none, Marshal. Does it, man? Yeah. See, Marshal? We don't care about your gun. There's too many of us. Aren't you forgetting something, Chote? What? I don't wear this gun to kill snakes with, the way you men do. I'll have bullets in at least three of you before you get off a shot. And you'll be the first. What's the matter with you men? He's just bluffing. He's scared half to death right now. Chote, Chote. Forget about it, Don't be angry, Then I'll fight him. I ain't so bad with a gun. Don't try it, Chote. You shoot me, the boys will take care of you. Don't do it, Chote, I'm telling you. Ah, uh, what's a Kansas marshal? No. Well, who's next? Any more of you men want to die in this place? All right, then get out of here and get on back to camp. Move. singing very loud this morning. How's your jaw, Tully? Busted. Doc said you busted it on this side right here. I'm sorry. I uh, I guess I must have lost my temper. You sure did, Marshal. But the fight's out of me now. I'm plumb sober. You heard about Gil Choke? Chester told me. Choke shouldn't have gone up against you. No, he shouldn't. Well... Now he's dead. It don't matter none, I guess. What doesn't matter? Choate's the man that killed Bud Cowan, Marshal. That's why I made him come to town for dark, kind of punish him that way. Oh? Shot Cowan in the back. But I had to protect Choate anyway. You know how did you? What about Sam Peoples, Tully? Oh, yeah. Well, I'd have wrote you a letter from Texas, Marshal. 
saying it was a lie. Anyway, I'm selling them cattle. I aim to be out of here in two days, Marshal. Uh-huh. Okay, Tully. Get going. We uh, can be friends now, can't we, Marshal? You ever hear of a lawman with friends? We must have a couple. Yeah. Yeah, I have. A couple. So long, Tully. I'll tell Sam Peoples that uh, you didn't mean it. our star, William Conrad. Thank you, George. You know, it's a wonderful cigarette we've been telling you about tonight. I mean, Chesterfield, of course. My cigarette. King size or regular, Chesterfields give you the taste and mildness you want every time you light up. So give them a try. They satisfy millions. You'll like them, too. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, John Daner, and Lawrence Dobkin. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Filter tip smokers, this is it. L&M filters. At last, a filter tip cigarette with much more flavor, much less nicotine. L&M's Miracle Tip contains alpha cellulose for effective filtration. It's the filter that counts, and L&M has the best. Yes, this is it. As Patricia Morrison puts it, L&M filters are just what the doctor ordered. Buy L&M filters. The light and mild smoke. Next week, at the same time, Chesterfield will bring you another story of the Western Frontier on Gun Smoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. It's almost the night before Christmas, and there's plenty stirring in our house. Gifts to deliver, cards to address, and we're far from broke even giving the best. Elgin American. The loveliest dresser set for swanky Aunt Carrie. That sensational lighter case for smooth Uncle Harry. And Mother's Elgin American simulated pearls. Gorgeous strands, earrings and rope. She'll let me borrow them, I hope, I hope. Yes, our magnificent compact magic action lighter and cigarette cases just couldn't be lighter than Elgin American makes them. And talk about values. Elgin American beats them all. Looks like a million, 
for prices so small. And there's also American Beauty to save you even more. It's Elgin American's companion line, the extra thrifty adore. So these last three days, do as millions have done. Buy the finest gift made by the only, the one, Elgin American. Good gracious, I've nothing for the Johnsons yet. Oh, gifts for girls at the office. Heavens, what can I get this late for Jim's boss? Keep calm, folks. It's not too late to buy the gifts that will make a big hit. Do you proud and look more expensive than they are. Elgin American gifts for men and women. Exquisite compact cigarette cases, dresser sets, luxurious simulated pearls, sensational lighter cases, magic action lighters. An almost endless choice of the most wanted gifts. All at real value prices. Gifts with the world's finest designing and craftsmanship. The prestige of the leading name in its field. The thrill of saying, it's an Elgin American. So make your last-minute shopping a big success. Tomorrow, buy the first-in-fashion, first-in-value gifts of them all. Elgin American gifts. The name Elgin American means the very finest quality, designing, finish, and craftsmanship. The best value. In exquisite compacts, gorgeous simulated pearls, magnificent dresser sets, magic action lighters, wondrous lighter cases, distinguished cigarette cases, handsome military sets, fascinating musical humidors. Your favorite store has a complete assortment of the newest Elgin American styles right now. See them. And for your own proud use, for thrilling prestige gifts, always buy Elgin American. Lever Brothers Company, makers of Swan, the soap with the exclusive super-creamed blend presents... Our friend, Swan, with my friend, Irma. Starring Mary Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship when other friendships have been forgotten. Theirs will still be hot. Sam will throw his annual forget-me-not party, that glorious little shindig known as income tax day. Me, Jane Stacy, I'm all prepared for it. Income, $2,500 a year. Assets, about $100. Liabilities, Irma Peterson. <laughs> and you know, I'm a little worried. Sometimes the government gives you a refund. What if they send me another Irma Peterson? <laughs> now, please, don't get the wrong impression because I love Irma. But there are times when she... Well, for instance, the other night I came home and found Irma in the middle of the floor with her head on the bathroom scales. So I said, for goodness sakes, honey, what are you doing? And Irma said, I'm just trying to find out if I have a balanced mind. <laughs> No, when she says those things, I no longer pull my hair. You see, I've come to know Irma a little better, and beneath it all, she's a sweet, honest kid who's determined to make something of herself. Otherwise, now, why would she be at the piano as she is, practicing lesson number two, which our dear friend and neighbor, Professor Kropotkin, has given her? C, C, E, F, G, A, 
Well, that was pretty good, honey. Yes, but that's C-D-E-F-G-A-B-C. What about it? It's such a hard way to pronounce death gap. <laughs> Sweetie, that's not a word. They're just notes. Now, come on. Back to your practicing, Irma. All right. Do, re, mi, el. Irma, what are you doing? It's supposed to be fa. I know, but I always like Al next to me. <laughs> grand, just grand. Don't you want to learn, honey? Well, it's not my fault. Professor Kropotkin was supposed to give me my third lesson a week ago, and I haven't seen him. Say, so, you know, come to think of it, I haven't seen him either. Gee, I hope he's not sick. Gee, my playing isn't that bad. Oh, I didn't mean it that way, honey. Come in. Hello, girls. Oh, it's you, Mrs. O'Reilly. Girls, I'm worried sick. The professor's been in his room all week, and he won't even answer the door. Oh, my goodness. What do you think it could mean? Oh, I don't know. I'm afraid the poor old man might be very sick. And then again, the deadbeat may have skipped without paying the rent. <laughs> well, maybe he killed himself. Oh, Irma, please. Well, it could happen. A lot of people kill themselves, and you don't hear from them for weeks. Oh. <laughs> Irma, his socks are hanging down there on the line. So what? You know what they say. You can't take it with you. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know what it's all about, but whatever it is, Mrs. O'Reilly, you have yourself to blame for it. The way you've kept nagging that sweet old man for the rent. I nag him? Well, that's ridiculous. I remember Christmas Eve. We were singing Silent Night, and I didn't mention it once during the entire song. I'm surprised that you say such a thing, Janie Oh, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, Mrs. O'Reilly Well, if you want to know, I'm the one who's been hurt The way he goes around telling everyone I'm an old, bat-faced cow well, Why don't you sue him? He says he can prove it <laughs> Hey, shh Listen a minute, everybody I think I hear a violin playing. Well, I I'll open the window, Jane. Yeah, honey. Why, sure. It is a violin. It's coming from the professor's room. Oh, it's beautiful. I think I'll accompany him on the piano. No, you won't. Just, just sit quiet and listen. Why, well, he stopped. Oh, thank goodness the professor's okay. Well, how do you know? Well, honey, when a person is dying, you never hear them playing such beautiful music. Oh, that's not true. When my grandfather died, he fell against the Victrola and started the most wonderful concert you ever heard. Oh. <laughs> Come in. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> Hello, Professor. Girls, girls, girls. What is it, Professor? Girls, I just... Tell me, Mrs. O'Reilly, since when were you a girl? <laughs> Oh, now, Professor, please, we've been so worried about you. Where have you been keeping yourself? Oh, girls, today is the happiest day of my life. Today I have finished my great masterpiece, my beautiful concerto. Oh, so that's what kept you locked up in your room. Sure. To write great music, a man must suffer. And nowhere in the world can a man suffer like in that room of mine. <laughs> Professor, that's wonderful. I'm positively thrilled. It's really too exciting for words. Oh, Professor, I, I don't mean to be stupid, but what's a concerto? Irma, my little pigeon, a concerto is a piece of a man's life set to music. The agony of his soul, the torment of his youth, the anguish of his struggles, and the torture of his misery. Can you dance to it? 
<laughs> well, hardly. Irma, Mrs. O'Reilly, isn't it just wonderful? Oh, I can't catch my breath. Professor, you don't know how proud I'll be to be able to say, folks, this is the bed in which Professor Kropotkin slept. That's a lie. The only night I slept in that bed was when the ceiling fell on my head. <laughs> Look here, you. No, now, now, listen, stop the bickering, both of you. Professor, come on, play your concerto. Come oh, on. no, Jenny, darling, not now. I'm rushing down to the publishers now. I want them to hear it. All my dreams are wrapped up in the success of this concerto. Wish me luck. Oh, from the bottom of my heart, Professor. And I wish you luck, too. Oh, by the way, until I hear from you, shall I keep on playing the piano the way I have been? Only if you want to get arrested. <laughs> well, goodbye, girls, and keep your fingers crossed. Come on, Kropotkin, you mad genius, you. Hello? Who? Oh, Al. Yeah, she's here. What's delayed you? Oh, you had two teeth pulled? Why are you so upset? Only one of them was bad? <laughs> well, Al, I don't understand. Oh, they pulled the one with the gold to pay for the other one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, uh, all right. Yeah, well, I'll tell Irma you'll be right over, Al. Bye. Well, girls, I think I'll go up to the professor's room and give it that feminine touch. Who knows, now that he's coming into the money, he might be looking around for a girl to share it with. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, gee, sweetie, I hope the professor sells his concerto. You know, he's so nice and so honest, and he's worked so hard, which is more than I can say for a certain party we both know. Jane, I don't know who you're referring to, but that's no way to talk about my Al. <laughs> well, I wasn't talking about Al. I wouldn't think of comparing the two men. After all, the professor has created something that may live forever. What's Al created? A long stick with a piece of chewing gum on the end for fishing nickels out of gratings. <laughs> well, that must be the fisherman right now. Come in. Hello, Jane. Hi, chicken. Hello, Al, honey. Guess what? The professor wrote a concerto, and he just went out to see a publisher. That's nice. What do you mean, that's nice? Now, there's a man who's going to get up in the world. So what, Jane? Lots of people get up in the world. Some do it by writing songs. Some discover oil. Some wear elevator shoes. But me, got my own way. Got my deals. Oh, heaven forbid. Another of your frauds? Oh, this one is very humanitarian. It's a ticker tape made out of rope. So when the stock market drops, you can hang yourself. <laughs> Very timely these days. Oh, yeah, it sounds very good, Al. Don't patent it until you try it. Oh. <laughs> oh, don't mind her, Al. Come over here by the piano. I'll play my second lesson for you. Okay, chicken, I still got Novocaine in me. <laughs> Say, Jane, while Irma plays, would you care to dance? No, thanks, Al. If you don't mind, I'll sit this one out. In fact, I think I'll sit it out at the beauty parlor. What's the matter, Jane? Don't you like the way I dance? Well, it, it, it's kind of hard for me to tell, Al. I'm always so busy dodging your feet. <laughs> I'll see you later, kids. Come in. 
Oh, hiya, Professor. What are you so dejected about? Al, I'm a tired old man. I went to every publisher in New York, and they wouldn't even see me because I haven't got a name. Well, that's silly. You've got a name. Why don't you show them your driver's license? Hold it, Jim. <laughs> don't be miserable, Professor. How can I be happy? No musician will ever play my concerto. I'll play it. That's what I said. No musician will ever play my concerto. <laughs> oh, I'm so heartbroken. All those nights and days wasted. Oh, we're sorry, Professor. Honest we are. I know you are, Emma, darling. Here, you can have my concerto. Come on, Kropotkin. You all failure, you. <laughs> Poor guy. You know, Chicken, sometimes these geniuses don't know how to handle themselves. Got an idea. Can you play the professor's concerto, Chicken? Well, I I'll try, Al. Ah, uh, something wrong with this piano, Al. No matter what I play, it sounds the same. <laughs> well, forget it, Chicken. Hand me that music. A wheel is beginning to turn in my mind. Gee, Al, I love it when you and I are together. Then I know one of our heads is always working. <laughs> Say, lady, when you go out, do you sometimes wish you could be slipping on a soft, fabulously expensive mink coat? Well, if you would like a glamorous fur coat, then listen closely. You have a chance to win one in the exciting Lever $100,000 fur contest. Here are the prizes given away each week for five weeks. One $3,000 mink coat, three $1,000 fur coats, five smart fur jackets worth $500, as well as 320 other prizes of valuable furs and cash. Hello? Oh, yes, madam, I was just talking about the wonderful Lever Fur Contest. Prizes? Why, there are 1,645 in all, 329 each week. What do you have to do? Why, it's simple. Just tell in 25 words or less why you like any one of these six Lever products. Swan soap, Lux Flakes, Lux Toilet Soap, Life Boy, Rinso, or Spry. Then send in the wrapper or box top from one of these with your entry. How long does the contest run? Well, there are three contests left, and a new contest begins each week. Oh, certainly, you can send in as many entries as you like. Well, good luck. And, oh, say, don't forget to get your entry blank from your dealer. It will give you all the information you need. Goodbye. Be seeing you in Mink. Well, folks, that's the story, so don't wait a minute. Start writing tonight. This contest is limited to the continental United States, Hawaii, and Alaska. And, say, here's a hint. Sincerity counts. Write in your own words. Be sure to print your name and address and the name and address of your Lever Products dealer. Mail your entry to Lever Fur Contest, Box 1, New York 8, New York. That address again is Lever Fur Contest, Box 1, New York 8, New York. Enter every week. about Professor Kropotkin's failure, and I'm just heartsick. I don't know where he is. I can't locate Alan Irma. 
But I've decided to do something about it myself. You see, Richard has a friend, a music publisher, named Jed Leeds. And we're in Mr. Leeds' office right now, and he's trying to get rid of a fellow who claims that he writes original songs. And nothing could be cleaner than to see my darling Lena in the morning. Oh, nothing could be better than to see her in a sweater in the morning. Now hold it, hold it, hmm? please. Uh, not what you're looking for? Ha, get this one. Brand new. Oh. Carry me back to old Miami. <laughs> back to the land of palm trees and cocoa, cocoa nuts. Get it, get it? Now, wait a minute, son. Ah, uh, I know, I know. You want something peppier. Get this. Just stashed it off this morning. Over here, over here, what a year, over here, over here. Now look, my boy. For the boys are shaken, the market's breaking, we'll soon be back to nickel beer. Look, look, boy, boy, please, run along, will you? I'm busy, these people are waiting to talk to me. Okay, okay, but you'll be sorry. I'm going over to Whitmark and selling my masterpiece. Mammy's little baby loves shorten and pumpernickel. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Vienna. Is that his name? Vienna? Yes, he calls himself Irving Vienna. That's as close as he could get to Berlin. <laughs> now, Richard, I'm sorry to delay you like this. What can I do for you? Well, uh, Jane has a friend who's written a concerto, and, well, we thought you might listen to it. Oh, I'd be glad to. Do you have it with you? No, I haven't, but if you could arrange to see Professor Kropotkin, I'd be ever so grateful. I'm sure he has ability. Well, I'll be free this afternoon for a couple of hours. Can you locate him? I'll make it my business to. He works at the Gypsy Tea Room, and I'll find him if I have to look under every tea leaf. All the better, chicken. Got a lot of work to do. What do you mean, Al? Chicken, just figured out why this concerto with the professors is no good. Why it'll never sell. Why, Al? Because it ain't got no words. It's got to have lyrics. Oh, but Al, do you think it's right for us to mess with the professor's concerto? Chicken, he's got to have help. If we don't mess with it, who will? Uh, I guess you're right, Al. But where will we get the words? Right out of our heads. Oh, I guess that's as good a place as any. Why, sure, chicken. <laughs> Now, now, the first thing we got to remember is that songs like moving pictures go in cycles. They all copy each other, see? Now, for instance, this week it's Ingrid Bergman in Arch of Triumph. Next week it'll probably be Betty Davis in Ditch of Despair. <laughs> now, what's the number one song today? Um, Golden Earrings. Got our title, Silver Bracelets. <laughs> hey, that's pretty, Al, and it's not too expensive. Yeah. Hand me the concerto, chicken. Here, play these first few notes. Yeah, yeah, all right, forget it. I, I know the rhythm. Now, now, let's see. Da-da-dee-da-da, silver bracelets. Oh, silver bracelets in the moonlight make me once again a youth. For I see the moon above you, uh... Sparkling down upon your tooth. <laughs> no, chicken, spoils the beauty of the scene. Hey, let me try again. Want to get something southern? Uh, mint juleps? No, got it. Silver bracelets in the moonlight where the Mississippi flows. For I see the moon above you, uh... Sparkling down upon your nose? <laughs> no, no, chicken, forget about where it's sparkling. Now, we got to finish this song in a hurry. Got to get to a publisher and save the day for the professor. All right, Al. We'll take a different approach. 
Let's see now. Silver bracelets beneath the sky bring me back a lullaby. Banjos are strumming, people are humming. Sipping tea with lemon? <laughs> no, no, chicken. Need, need a good rhyme. Let's see. Strumming, humming. Only one man who can help us. Who else? Who else but... Hello, Joe. <laughs> Al, got a problem. I'm writing a song. Want something to rhyme with banjos are strumming, people are humming. Huh? Cheese it, the cops are coming? <laughs> no, no, Joe, I'll get something. Hey, Joe, by the way, do you know a good publisher? Uh-huh. 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 Mm-hmm. Duplicate Dan, the forger, is a music publisher now? Okay, Joe. We'll see Duplicate Danny. Thanks. Well, Chicken, got the publisher. Only a few more words. Now, let me see. A rhyme for humming. Our life was rugged. We had no plumbing. <laughs> no, 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 Chicken. I'll get something. Let me see. Humming, strumming, strumming, humming. Professor, Mr. Leeds will see us in a minute. Now, don't be nervous. Nervous? Who is nervous? I'm perfectly calm. Who is doing all that typing? That's your teeth chattering. <laughs> Come on, now, pull yourself together, Professor. Here comes Mr. Leeds. Oh. oh, I see you found him, Miss Stacy. Nice knowing you, Professor. Thank you. You have your music with you? No, sir, I came right from work. The music is with two friends, Al and Irma Peterson, but... I'm sure it's perfectly safe. Well, how can you play it? Do you know it by heart? Oh, yes. If I can get my heart down out of my throat so I can get my violin under my chin. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hear it. All right. My concerto. My life's work. Mr. Leeds? It's beautiful. You're a great composer, Kropotkin. Do you realize what you're saying, Mr. Leeds? Do you realize that you're saying, I'll be a man again? I'll be able to hold my head up, look my landlady in the eye, and move out of a room that even the mice have boycotted? <laughs> oh, now, now, don't break down, Professor. We're all just as happy as you are. Of course, I can't commit myself until Mr. Eccles, my associate, hears the recording we made while you were playing. You made the record? Kropotkin's on the record. Mr. Leeds, I hope you'll let the professor know just as soon as possible. Well, if Eccles likes it as much as I do, we'll publish it. I'll drop by your place, Miss Stacy, with the contract and our usual advance of $1,000. $1,000? Quick, I can't catch my breath. Here, here's a glass of water. How dare you? You give water to a multimillionaire tonight, the champagne will flow. Well, Danny, now that you heard silver bracelets, what do you say? Now, let me see. Lyrics by Al, with an assist by Irma Peterson. Music by Professor Kropotkin. Well, Al, we generally don't buy from new writers. But since you're a friend of Joe's, we'll make an exception. I'll give you $100 for all rights. You know, buy it outright. Boy, $100. Oh, gee, Jane will never forget us for what we've done for the professor. Just sign that paper while I look the lyrics over again. 
silver bracelets on a ballerina in the Easter parade deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> Four hits in one song. We got to click somewhere. Yeah, well, well you can ju use just what you want. Here's the contract all signed, Daddy. Okay, and here's your check. Oh, if you want to hear the number, listen in tonight at 7. We'll have it introduced by six misses and a hit. Swell, Daddy. Come on, chicken. Let's go home and reap the rich rewards of the joy we have brought. Well, we're all sitting here excitedly waiting for Jed Leeds, Richard, myself, Mrs. O'Reilly, and the professor. Oh, the professor's beaming confidently. Mrs. O'Reilly's dressed up like a Christmas tree. She's flirting with him. Now she's fluttering her eyelashes at him. Oh. She's, she's so embarrassed. They fell off. <laughs> I guess she's not used to wearing them. Now the professor's smiling happily. He's probably thinking of the thousand dollars. Now he's frowning, probably thinking of the income tax. Now he's humming the concerto. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Leeds. How did Mr. Eccles like it? Went out of his mind about it. Here's your contract, Professor, and I have the check right here for you. Oh, oh hello, Jane. Irma, you're just in time. We have the most wonderful news for you and Al. Well, we got wonderful news, too. Oh, no, well, will you hear ours? Mr. Leeds here, he, he's a publisher, and he's just bought the Professor's Concerto with an advance of $1,000. Hmm? Huh? Now, what's your good news? Irma? Al, why are the two of you looking at each other like that? Uh, we've missed each other. <laughs> why do you keep staring at each other? We want to make sure we haven't changed. <laughs> What's the difference? I'm the happiest man alive. Let there be rejoicing, laughter, music. Turn on the radio. Uh, not now. It's 7 o'clock. Uh, and you wouldn't want to listen to Six Misses and a Hit. Yeah, hold her chicken. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Irma Peterson, what have you and Al been up to? Irma? Oh, you might as well tell them, Al. Here, Professor, here's the check. We sold your concerto for $100. What? <laughs> Irma, darling, I know you got a vacuum in your head, but why use it to clean me off? <laughs> We're sorry, Professor. We, we just wanted to help. Well, I guess there's nothing more for me to say. Goodbye. Excuse me. Hello? Oh, just, just a minute, Mr. Lee. Just a minute, please. Uh, it's for you. Oh, uh, thank you. Yes? Oh, Eccles. What? What? You don't say. Well, we found out just in time. What is it? Your friend Kropotkin is a plagiarist. Huh? Our chief arranger says that this concerto was stolen from an old Hungarian heir, note for note. Stolen? How can you say this? Why, that theme? That's mine. That's all mine. I'm very sorry, but our man never makes a mistake. Good day. Here's the hundred-dollar check, Professor. A check? How can you talk of money when my artistic integrity has been questioned? Life means nothing to me now. Goodbye. Oh, Irma, I'm worried. He may do something desperate. Come on, let's go up to his room. Yes, let's hurry. Professor. Professor? 
Please go away, girl. My heart is broken. I'm lying down. No, we're coming in. Oh, don't cry, Professor. But they they called me a plagiarist. A thief. Well, don't let it get the best of you. Al doesn't. <laughs> but I know it's original. Oh, sure it is, Professor. But these things happen, honest. Gee, you have a hundred dollars, and you'll feel better after you have a good night's sleep. How can I sleep, Jenny? They called me a plagiarist. Well, maybe I can sing you a lullaby. Oh, would you, Irma? Yes, do. Do you have any special favorite one? Yes, Irma. One my mother used to sing to me in the old country. Well, how did it go? da 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 Hey, ladies, you'll really like Swan Soap for Dishes because Swan's exclusive Super Creams blend means faster suds in the dishpan. Suds that rinse away so completely your dishes never need drying. And Super Creams blend means hand protection, too. Your hands come out of the dishpan smooth and lovely as ever. Yes, Swan Soap is the perfect dishwashing soap thanks to Swan's exclusive Super Creams blend. <laughs> My friend Irma, presented by Swan, another fine product of Lever Brothers Company, was produced and directed by Cy Howard. Tonight's script was written by Cy Howard and Park Levy. Say, men, how would you like a job that offered you regular pay increases, a chance to reach the top, all living expenses paid, free medical and dental care, early retirement, expert training, travel and adventure? Well, those are the opportunities the Navy offers you. And you can enlist now if you're 17 to 31 years old and a United States citizen in normal health. Yes, serve your country and get ahead at the same time. Enlist in the United States Navy. Frank Bingman speaking. You bet there's a reason why Spry is the cake-making wonder. Spry has an amazing cake improver secret. Try the sure Spry one bowl way and be certain of lighter, finer, richer cakes every time. No other type of shortening has Spry's Cake Improver Secret. For new cake-making success, rely on Spry. Pure all-vegetable Spry with Cake Improver. Rely on Spry. S-P-R-Y. Rely on Spry. Tune in next week one hour earlier and listen to the Lux Radio Theater immediately followed by my friend Irma. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. to take you down to Pine Ridge for another visit with Lum and Abner, brought to you by the makers of Horlicks, the original malted milk. 
I wonder if all of Lum and Abner's overweight friends are using the Horlick weight control plan. Judging by the many letters we've received, a lot of them certainly are. And finding it safe and satisfactory, too. Briefly, the plan is this. Instead of eating a heavy, hard-to-digest lunch, these overweight listeners are drinking a good glass full of Horlick's malted milk at noon. This makes a sustaining, easy-to-digest lunch, one that keeps you alert. You get none of that drowsy feeling that comes from eating a big midday meal. Yet, and this is the point, Horlick's offers sustaining nourishment without the excess calories of a heavy meal. And excess calories are just what bring your excess worries. Try Horlicks yourself. It saves time, money, and health. All you need is a package of Horlicks malted milk. And this you can get from your druggist in either natural or chocolate flavor. And now, let's see what's happening down in Pine Ridge. Well, Lum and Abner have quite a problem on their hands. They're enjoying a splendid patronage to their circus, but for the past two days, the entire receipts have been stolen out of the safe in the wagon that serves as their office. So far, they have found no definite clue to the mysterious disappearance of the funds, and yet there are several who might be implicated in the theft. Well, as we look in on the circus grounds today, we find Abner and Squire Skimp in the office discussing the matter. Listen. Well, that's the reasons I come over, Abner. I just want to have a heart-to-heart talk with you. I know all this money disappearing, it looks bad for me. It's no more than natural that I'd be the first one that you'd suspicion. Well, I ain't accused you of taking it, Squire. Well, no, you haven't come right out and said so, Abner, but natural with you and Lum and me being the only ones that know the combinations on that safe. I'd be the first one that you'd think took it. Yeah, I reckon so. I've always tried to live honest, to do right by my fellow man. And that's why it grieves me so to think that you'd even suspicion for one minute that I'd slip in this wagon under the cloak of darkness and take from that safe money that belonged you and love, two of my oldest friends. Well, now, Squire, now, I, I wouldn't let myself get all tore up over this. Well, it's a matter of, of uh, defending my honor, Abner. A man reaches my age in life, Abner, he, he just ain't got much left to live for except his reputation and his friends. Well, a little money laid up, too, won't hurt nothing. Yes, but if I had to sacrifice my principles for a few paltry dollars, take advantage of old friends like you and Lum, I'd choose a pauper's grave first. Doggy Squire, you wouldn't have made a bad out of preaching, you know what? Well, I, I just want you to know, Abner, that although the finger of suspicion is pointed at me, my conscience is clear. I've done nothing to betray your trust. Well, I told you I didn't think you done it, Squire. Ain't, ain't no use for you to keep telling me that you never stole the money. Well, now, that's fine. I'm glad to hear you say that, Abner, I am. I'm willing to hire a detective out of my own pocket to come in here and clear up the whole thing rather than to have you suspicion me for one minute. Well, I don't see no need in doing that, Squire. We're bound to find out eventually who took it. Well, Abner, I want to talk to you a a little confidential. Don't want you to quote me on this, but uh, 
Has it ever occurred to you that uh, Lum might be taking that money himself? Lum? <laughs> what in the world would he be wanting to take it for? It belongs to me and him. Besides that, that wouldn't be stealing if he took it. Well, of course, uh, half of it belongs to him, but half of it is yours, too. Yeah, but Lum never done nothing. He, he, he just had never had nothing to do with it. I'll guarantee you that's why. He's just as honest a man as ever draw breath. Why, you seen the surprised look on his face when he opened that safe and seen the money was gone. Yes, but now he might have been looking that way on purpose, Abner, to throw you off the track, you know. No, 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 I've known Lum too long, Squire. Had too many dealings with him. It couldn't have been him. Well, I don't know, Abner. I don't think that Lum would do a thing like that ordinarily, no. But sometimes, you know, a man can be influenced into doing something that he knows is wrong. Uh, uh, what do you mean by that, Squire? Well, just to talk straight, Abner. Now, here's this bareback rider, Zinola. She seems to have swept Lum right off his feet. And I believe he'd do nearly anything that she told him to. Oh, yeah, she's got him locked her right around her finger. There ain't no doubt about that. Well, now, she's a smart young lady and would know just how to work a fellow like Lum. Why, the other day she had him all revved up to buy a big electric sign to put across the top of the tent there with her name on him. Yeah, and he'd have did it, too, if that money hadn't disappeared. Why, sure he would. He was all set to go right down by. Yeah, I, I talked to him for three hours trying to talk him out of that idea. He was all set to go down and pay $800 for that sign just, just so that he could put the Noah's name across that big light, he said. I know he was. And I'll tell you something else now. I just heard this a while ago, Abner. Lenora told the snake charmer that Lum was going to buy her a big diamond engagement ring. A diamond engagement ring? Yes, and now uh, that could be, you know, what he intends to do with the money. No, no. No, I don't believe he'd do that, Squire. No, not Lum. Well, now, you know that he hadn't got any money of his own to be buying diamonds with. It's that woman, I tell you, Abner, Zenora. She's putting these ideas in his head just to show her the world. Well, now, Squire, I, I just never would be. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's something now. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's just like I say, Abner. You men ought to make a lot of money out of this circus. The crowd has been good here lately. Uh, yeah, gentlemen, gentlemen. Oh, uh, uh, hello, Lum. Good evening, good evening. Yeah, come on in, Lum. Uh, keep your seat, Squire. I can sit right over here. Oh, no, no, Lum. I, I was just fixing to go anyway. I've uh, got a little business to attend to before the performance tonight. Well, I'll be around there for long, Squire, to open up the box office. All right, Lum. What's the matter, Lum? Oh, I'm just getting to where I can't hardly stand to be around that Squire stamp. Yeah, what's the matter if you and Squire? Well, I just don't like the altitude he's t- taking about this money disappearing. Oh, well, now, Lum, I-, I wouldn't pay no attention to nothing if he's there. Well, you-, you wouldn't be talking that way if you knowed who he's trying to lay it on to. Oh, yeah, I already know. I never liked it myself. I don't blame you. I run him out of the wagon here this morning. I wouldn't stand for him making such a accusation. Well, now, that, that ain't going to get the money back from him accusing somebody. I'll bet you whoever's been stealing it gets a surprise tonight, all right. <laughs> a surprise? Yeah, I ain't going to put it in that safe no more. 
They got it out of there twice. Ain't no use to just give it to them. Yeah, well, now, I wouldn't be carrying that much money around on me, Lum. That's dangerous business now. Well, I ain't oh. going to carry it on me. I'm going to hide it in another place tonight. I ain't going to put it in the safe. Oh. I'll hide it in the bottom of that trunk over there tonight and then take it out in the morning and carry it down to the bank and deposit it. I'm going to put it in the trunk, you say. Wait a minute. Be quiet. Yeah, what's the matter? Wait a minute. I hear something. Huh? Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Uh, what are you doing there? Hold on there. Who is that? Cedric, is that you? Yes, Mom. Well, what are you doing slipping around the side of the wagon there? Well, uh, I wasn't slipping around, Mr. Lum. I, I just started to come in the wagon, and I seen you and Mr. Abner was talking some business, so I started to leave. Well, <laughs> well don't be hanging around this wagon. Just stay away from here. Yes, Mom. Ah, oh, Claude, you scared me to death, Mom, when you jumped up that way under the door there. Yeah, I reckon I'm a little nervous. This thing's got me about half out of my head, Abner. Abner, you reckon Cedric could know anything about where that money's been going? You mean, you reckon if he stole the money? Cedric? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> why, no, Rom. Why, Cedric couldn't get in the safe if he wanted to. He, he don't even know the combination. Well, now, that's just all you know about it. He knows that combination a heap better than me or you do it. You mean Cedric knows the combination to the safe? Yes, sir. You know, I never can recollect a thing myself, and yesterday evening I went to open the safe, and they just me and Cedric in here, and I couldn't recollect the combination, and he sat right there and told me what it was. He did? Yeah, I never thought nothing about it at the time, but I got to studying about it today. I don't know him. Now, I hate to think such a thing about Cedric. I've always liked the boy. Oh, Cedric's a fine boy. Now. He's worked there in the store first over Pine Ridge for years. Oh, and never sure. had no trouble with him. Oh, no, I'll trust Cedric, Mom. I'll give him chances to take things. He's just honest as he can be. Yeah, but I'll sworn he'd see his pranking mighty strong at him. Well, now, Mom, I wouldn't go nothing on that now. He, he might have just watched, you know, me and you open the safe and happened to learn the combination by heart, you know, accidentally. I don't know. Well, it's him or Squire Skimp one. I know that. Well, now, I, I don't believe Squire done it neither, Lum. I thought so maybe for a while, but he was in here a while ago and talking to me about it, and he, he just might not bring tears to my eyes tell me how innocent he is. How innocent he is? Oh, yeah. He sat here and told me on his word that he never had a thing in the world to do with it. Well, you don't expect him to come right out and admit to it, do you? Well, no, Ron, but he talked awful honest to me. Well, a fellow that steals money that way ain't going to admit to it. Well, no, but Squire, he looked me right in the eye when he said it. Oh, I tell you, Abner, after some of the other stunts Squire Stimp pulled on us, I wouldn't put nothing past him. Well, there's one thing about it. If you hide it in the trunk tonight, why, me and you can watch your face. Find out what you're saying, Abner. Did you hear somebody? Who is that? What do you want? Wait a minute, I seen you hauled around you. Who is it, Lom? Who is it? What's the matter? Oh, my goodness, I don't know. I couldn't see for sure. Just as I stepped to the door here, he run around the corner of the wagon. Well, why didn't you shoot? I never had nothing to shoot with. Wait a minute, listen. Well, uh, what's where you going next time? Listen. Somebody get hurt the first thing you know, running around here like a wild man. Uh, is that you, Squire? What's the matter? Oh, that brother Zenora's come carrying around the end of the wagon there and run right square into me, knocked me right flat on my back. You know his brother. Hmm. Well, this seems to only complicate matters more than ever. Who stole that money? Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. S.J.B. of Covington, Kentucky, writes to tell us of a conversation between two youngsters playing baseball that she overheard recently. 
We thought maybe you'd like to hear it, so we're going to reenact it. Listen. Let's quit, Bob. Oh, gee, it's my turn to bat. You can bat first tomorrow. No, I can't. I gotta go to the dentist. Besides... Oh, I'm tired. I'm gonna quit. Oh, all right. You just can't take it, that's all. Who can't? I'll bet you're tired, too, only it's your time to bat. Maybe so. But I wouldn't be if I had some Wallach's tablets. Huh? What are they? Oh, you know. Wallach's smaller milk powder done up in tablets. They give you a pep. Well, let's get some. How much are they? Only a dime. How much you got? I got four cents. Well, I got three. That's seven. Mom will give us the rest. Come on, let's go after it. And that was all that Mrs. S.J.B. had time to hear. But it was enough to show how popular Horlick's tablets are becoming. Youngsters, motorists, early golfers, shoppers, people in all walks of life are finding Horlick's tablets great for warding off hunger and fatigue. Have you tried them yet? You can get them, if you haven't, at your druggist in either natural or chocolate flavor. This is Carlton Brickert, speaking for Lum and Abner and Horlicks, who now bid you all good night and good health. pleasantly surprised when you discover how Spam baked for dinner is a real taste tempter that satisfies the family completely. That's because Spam, S-P-A-M, is a perfect blend of sweet, juicy pork shoulder meat and tender ham, seasoned in a better way, cooked to a delicious extra goodness. Plan a meal around baked Spam. It's so easy. Just open a can of Spam, place the meat in a shallow baking dish, and bake according to the recipe on the label. In a jiffy, you'll take to the table a main course so distinctive in meaty flavor, so filled with lip-smacking satisfaction that the family will say, Spam is really elegant eating. Give the folks baked Spam tomorrow. The easiest to get, best-to-eat dinner you've had in a long, long time. But start right and get the real thing. Be sure to ask your food dealer for S-P-A-M, Spam. And then you'll be happy like Susie in the story who found... Susie winked her eye, and Sam passed her by, but baked Spam for dinner was the way she got her guy. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a forgery detail. An accomplished check forger is at work in your city. His victims, small businessmen. 
You know his M.O. You don't know his identity. Your job, get him. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke extra mild Fatima. Yes, Fatima is the king-size cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make it extra mild. To give Fatima a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. Enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. Best of all, long cigarettes. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, February 4th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of forgery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Elliot. My name's Friday. I was on the way home from the office, and it was 8.25 p.m. when I got to Collis Avenue. Number 4656. Joseph, is that you? Yeah, Ma. We're in the living room. We have company. Oh, that's all? Hello, Joe. Well, you remember Mary Fowler, don't you, Joseph? I sure do. How are you, Miss Fowler? Just fine, Joe, thank you. <laughs> Doing some shopping out this way and thought I'd stop by and have a cup of tea with your mother. Well, it's good to see you. <laughs> How are things in the old neighborhood, huh? Oh, pretty much the same. Oh, Miss Daly, remember her? Mm-hmm. Finally died. Oh, yeah. I suppose it was for the best, though. I was just telling your mother, Jim and Louise Watson finally moved. Jim got a new job. How by Aldadina. Oh, is that so? Yeah. My, you certainly looking fine, Joe. <laughs> Don't you wear your police uniform anymore? Oh, my, no, Mary. Joseph's in the detective bureau now. Hasn't worn his uniform for years. Oh, that's right. I remember now. <laughs> that note you sent with your Christmas card year before last. What do you do now, Joe? Forgery detail. My partner and I handle bum check cases. My, that certainly must be interesting. Have you had your dinner, Joseph? Yes, ma'am. I stopped at a place out in Santa Monica and had some. Yes, well, Mary brought me some nice coffee cakes. Pineapple filling. Wouldn't you like one with a cup of coffee, Joseph? No, I don't know, Mary. You sit down in your chair there and rest yourself. You always look so tired. I have no idea how hard they work, those young fellas, Mary. You remember Genevieve, don't you, Joe? My oldest girl. Oh, yeah, sure. How is she? Oh, just fine. Lots of boyfriends, as usual. Going out all the time. Oh, that's good. She um, asked to be remembered to you. I, I think you and Jen were stuck on each other at one time, weren't you, Joe? Oh, we went to a couple of dances in high school. Well, I think she started going steady with another fellow, didn't she? Mm, young girl. You never know when they're well off. Here's your coffee, Joseph. Set it here on the end table. Thanks. I don't think I can use it, Ma. It's delicious coffee cake. You smell how fresh it is. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, my, quarter to nine. I should have left half an hour ago. Oh, you have to go, Mary? Seems yeah. our visits are always so short. Well, I got a lot of ironing to do, and I have to make Carl's lunch. He's always so fussy about his lunch. Yes, well, I'll get your coat. Well, it's nice seeing you again, Joe. Uh, do you want to be remembered to Genevieve? Yeah, tell her hello, will you, Miss Fowler? If you're over our way, be sure and drop in and see us, won't you? Genevieve's home office by six. 
She often says she'd like to see you again. Oh, thanks. Good night, Joe. You be sure to come and see us now. Jen will be looking forward to it. Okay, Miss Fowler. Good night. Yeah, well, I'll show you to the door. Mm-hmm. You remember all the neighbors, won't you? All right, dear. I wouldn't do take care of yourself now. Good night. Good night, Mary. Nice person, Mary. She's having a hard time trying to find a husband for Genevieve. Yeah. Hey, Ma, I'm not very hungry. I can't eat now. Oh? It seems such a shame to waste. Lovely coffee cake. Been used on the same case, hmm? Yeah, same one. Seems to me it's taking an awfully long time. Well, we've been on it two months, yeah. You never understand it. Well, people write bad checks. <laughs> Always get caught. Well, it's easy living while it lasts. Now you know what the man's handwriting is like. Don't you know who the man is? Well, we think so, Ma. We're not sure. There's hundreds of check men who work almost alike. Some of them even look alike. There's always a big enough field to pick from. Our problem's picking the right one. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but the whole thing seems kind of silly to me. Well, how's that? Hmm. What, what's this man supposed to be doing? Going around your small neighborhood stores, cashing $15, $20 checks? If he got himself a job, he'd probably earn that much in one day doing good, honest work. Yeah. Say, Ben didn't call before I got home, did he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he with you? Oh, he was going to interview one of the bum check victims on his way home, a grocery store owner down in Highland Park. It might be him now. Oh, now, don't hang on that phone, Joe. Should be coughing get cold. Yeah. Friday talking. This is Ben, Joe. Got a partial identification from that grocer's nothing great. Which mug shot did he like? Stanley Buback. Grocer thinks it might have been the guy who pushed the check. He can't be sure. Thirty-three bum checks passed. Same M.O. Not one positive identification. Something's phony, isn't it? Got me stuff. We know the endorsements on every one of those checks was written by the same guy. He was practically the same story on every one of his victims. Yeah. Those 33 people are either blind or they're kidding us. Well, there's only one other answer. Huh? We're looking for the wrong man. For two months and two days in different shopping districts throughout the city, a man described as well-dressed and middle-aged had been passing worthless checks on independent neighborhood businessmen. Most of the victims were proprietors of small shops, meat markets, liquor stores, grocery stores. In none of the cases was the check written for more than $25. With the help of the stats office and our record bureau, we'd gone through the list of experienced check men until we found one man whose description and M.O. matched perfectly with that of the suspect. The man's name was Stanley Buebeck. We can't locate him, Captain. Another thing, we can't get a positive identification from any of the victims. And find a suspect they can't identify You've been tracking the guy for two months. What's the big mystery? Well, we tabbed the man as Stanley Buebeck, and his record and his M.O., his description, they all tie in perfectly. Now we're not sure it's him. What do you mean? Well, if it is Buebeck, it's almost a sure thing that one of the victims could have made him on one of his mug shots. None of them can make up their minds. Look, maybe one of you two would like to be captain of forgery for a day, sit in this office and listen to complaints come in over that phone about this guy, the front office, neighborhood businessmen's clubs, retail merchants... They tell me they're troublesome and passing them on to you. Now, whoever this paper hanger is, we want him, and we want him fast. Lousy little $20 checks. We'd probably have a lot better target if he tried something bigger. And don't think he and a hundred other check men like him don't know that. You won't find them stealing company paychecks and flooding the town with paper. 
They take it from the little guy and they take it in small amounts, but add up those small amounts at the end of the year and they'll scare you. Well, that's the rotten part about it. None of those victims can afford a bad check. And Grocer Donnelly stands on his feet all day and at a profit of $10, $15. He gets tagged with one bad check and he's working for nothing. We've got bulletins out on the suspect. All the small businessmen in town have all been alerted. Excuse me. Captain Elliot. Yeah, okay, Don, right away. Don Myers. He went over the handwriting of those last three checks. Wants to see you. Okay. How about that special bulletin you got out to the prisons on Stanley Bubeck? Any replies? Nothing yet, Skipper. All right, stay on it. Right, let's go, man. Sour deal. I'd give a right arm for a line on this guy. Yeah. Well, it'd move a lot faster if somebody'd help us follow those checks closer. The way it's running now, we hear about the paper two weeks after it's been cashed. The Bubeck thing isn't helping much. No use trying another line we get a settle. Hi, Don. Oh, hi. Uh, just finished up on those last three checks that came in. You want to give them a look? How do they shape up? Well, you can see for yourself. Right here. Yeah. Uh, here are the three I just went over. Mm-hmm. And uh, here are a half a dozen bad ones for cash last month. Uh, the endorsements on this half doesn't match perfectly. And those other three? Well, I'd say they were endorsed by the same person. Now, look here. Huh? You can notice the capital letters. They still handle them the same way. Disconnected from the other letters in the first name. See? Yeah, yeah. But he connects the capitals in the last name. See? Mm-hmm. Not very bright. Yeah. Uh, not much doubt in my mind. All the other handwriting factors tie in. The form, skill shading. They all match up. Uh, the movement, the terminals, they're all the same for my money. Uh, here, the way he writes the lower case letters. Yeah, that cinches it for me. How's that done? Well, here. The uh, inclination of the terminal stroke on the S. See? Degree mm-hmm. of slant above the horizontal is just about 55 degrees in all cases. Mm-hmm. Now, the finger movement in his capitals have plenty of freedom. They're not shaded much. Yeah. Nothing like this in his lowercase letters, though, you see? Here. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Not much freedom here, lots of shading. And the uh, pressure on the lifts, here, they match yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Same on the downstroke. Now, I'd say the skill is medium in all cases. Embellishments, both class two. No changes at all in the style? Oh, he made the signatures look a little different. All eight factors match up, though. It's the same person. All we have to do is find him. Hey, uh, how about this fellow, Stanley Bubeck? I thought you had him tapped. No, we're not too sure about him, but it's the only line we got to work on, so we'll have to do for now. Mm-hmm. Romero, the man in the office to see you and Joe. Name's Loomis. Right, Fred. Be there in a minute. Okay. Well, thanks, Don. We'll check you later, huh? Yeah, sure, okay. See you. Let's go, Ben. Yes, sir. Sergeant Romero? No, this is Sergeant Romero here. My name's Friday. Oh, how are you do? What can we do for you? It's about these checks, Sergeant. Uh, these uh, right here. Yeah? You see, I run a delicatessen out on Sunset, and a few days ago, a new customer came in for a few things and paid for them with these checks. He came in twice. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I got the checks back today. They're no good. I tried to look up the man at the address he gave, but... There's no such address. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see, one's for $15, the other one's for 20 yeah. reason I asked for you, men, is because I know the man who runs the drugstore across the street, George Holmquist. 
He had some bad checks about a month ago. He said you took care of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Do you recall the man who passed these checks, Mr. Holmes? Yes, I think I do. He told me he was new in the neighborhood and he was looking for a place to trade. Well, I guess we're all anxious for new business. I took the checks. You got those mug shots there, Ben? Well, yeah. Right, here we are. Thank you. How about these men, Mr. Loomis? Any of them look anything like the person who passed the checks on you? No. Let's see. Now, this one, yes, it does look like the man in a way. I don't know if I could be absolutely sure. Stanley Bubeck, same M.O.? Beg your pardon? Well, it looks like you're stuck with a couple of bad ones, Mr. Loomis. Probably the same man who passed checks on your druggist friend. Now, we're doing everything we can to run this man down. But what about the checks? Isn't there anything I can do about them? No, sir, I'm sorry. Not right now. We would like to have you make out a crime report, if you will, and would you leave these checks with us? Friday, Romero. Excuse us, Mr. Loomis. This just came in for you. Reply from Salt Lake City, Utah, on that bulletin you sent out under Stanley Bubeck. Yeah. He's been in jail for five months. We sent a request to Salt Lake asking him to question Stanley Bubeck if he knew of any forger who matched his description or used his M.O. Bubeck could tell us nothing. Wednesday, February 6th, we threw away the results of two months of investigation. We went back and started from the beginning. Despite all precautions and warnings, the checks kept coming in at the rate of half a dozen a week. The same M.O. was used, the same handwriting showed up in the signatures on the checks. Again, with the help of the staff and the statistician's office and the record bureau, we waded through hundreds of names of known check men and compiled a new list of 38 possible suspects. Each one fitted the general description of the forger. Each one, at some time in his forgery career, had used the same general method of operation. Well, after days of legwork, we finally boiled down the list of possibles to three names. George Roberts, James Young, and a Harry L. Johansson. We got out a flyer to all the small businessmen in the areas where the forger operated. Another week passed. The worthless checks kept showing up at the rate of two and three a day. On February 21st, Ben and I answered a call from a druggist in the Echo Park district. He bought some toothpaste and a carton of cigarettes, Sergeant. Asked me to cash a $20 check for him. Did you ever see the man before, sir? No, he gave me the same old story about being new in the neighborhood. That's when I remembered that uh, police bullet in the department sent me. Mm-hmm. Do you still have that bullet? No, I looked it over, and then I guess it got mislaid. I wonder if you'd mind taking a look at these pictures here. Not at all. These right here. Mm-hmm. Sure. This one right on top, that's the man. You sure? I am. It only happened a few hours ago. Uh, do you know who he is? Harry L. Johansson. That's the name we have on him. It doesn't mean anything to me. He got real huffy when I wouldn't take his check. Stalked right out of the store. Very suspicious. Did you follow him? No, I told Ralph, my clerk, to follow him. Uh, Ralph. Yeah, Mr. Butler? You want to tell these officers about that man this morning? I uh, followed him down the street for a block and then turned the corner. That's where I lost him. Hmm, it's too bad. Yeah, all I got was a license number. listening to Dragnet, the case history of a police investigation presented in the public interest by Fatima Cigarettes. If you smoke a long cigarette, it will be in your interest to listen to a typical case history of a Fatima smoker. It's the case of Northwest Airlines stewardess Jean Metzen. You'll see her picture in leading magazines this week. Now her actual signed statement. There's one thing I really look forward to after a long flight, a good mild smoke. That's why I prefer king-size Fatima It's milder than any other long cigarette I've tried. 
Yes, I agree it's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. And so do more and more smokers every day. Actual figures show extra mild Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. So enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. The king-size cigarette, which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos, superbly blended to make it extra mild. You will prefer Fatima's much different, much better flavor and aroma. You will agree. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. Best of all, long cigarettes. September 21st, Thursday, 3 p.m. We took the license number which the drugstore clerk had given us. We went back to the office and checked it through DMV. We found the car was registered to a Russell Burroughs on Pico Boulevard. We checked him out. He told us that he had loaned his car the day before to a friend of his. He identified the friend as Harry L. Johansson and gave us his last known address. 614 Elderwood Avenue. We got out a broadcast on the car. The Elderwood Avenue address turned out to be a single-story wooden frame house in the southern part of the city on the edge of the industrial district. It needed a coat of paint. A woman in her elderly 30s answered the door and identified herself as Mrs. Johansson. She invited us into the living room. There was a baby playing on the floor. I don't expect my husband home for another two weeks, Sergeant. He's a cosmetic salesman. Travels all over the western states. When did he leave on this last trip, Mrs. Johansson? The first of the month. Why, is there anything wrong? What's the name of the cosmetics company that your husband works for? Harrington Universal. Offices are down on East Main. Mm-hmm. Do you know a friend of your husband's named Russell Burroughs? Yes, I do. He's kind of a friend of the family. Please, Sergeant, if there's anything wrong, I ought to know. We talked to Mr. Burroughs this afternoon. He told us your husband's in town. Burroughs loaned him his car. Harry? That's silly. He's still on the road. He'd certainly let me know if he was coming back early. You sure of that, ma'am? <laughs> Would you excuse me a minute, Sergeant? I'll have to put the baby to bed. Certainly, ma'am. Come on, Bonnie. I'll be back in a minute. Kind of a funny setup, isn't it? How do you mean? Well, if Johansson's pushing bum checks, the money isn't going into his home here. My wife doesn't act like she knows anything. Seems cooperative. Well, afraid we're going to have to level with her if we're going to find out anything, huh? Mm-hmm. You sure got a cute little girl. I'm sorry, Sergeant. It's perfectly all right. Just a few more questions. Is it possible that your husband could be in town and you might not know it? I mean, could he be staying with a friend or some relatives? <laughs> no, if Harry was in town, he'd come home. Why would he stay with anyone else? When did you last hear from your husband? Last week. He wrote from San Francisco. The letter's right there on the mantel. Oh, huh. Well, besides that letter, do you have any other samples of your husband's handwriting on the Well, I, I think so, yes. Where did you say you were from? Central Division, forgery detail. You investigate checks, bad checks? Yes, ma'am, that's right. And you know about my husband? His prison record, yes. Harry promised me he was through with all that. He gave me his word. Sorry, ma'am. About a month ago, he had some extra money. He wouldn't tell me where he got it. Look, Sergeant, maybe you've made a mistake. Maybe it's not Harry at all. You're not sure, are you? Did your husband use the phone much? I mean, for out-of-town calls, say? No. Just that one toll call, a Long Beach number, I think. He has a business friend down there he used to call. Do you know the number, ma'am? I can show you. It's on last month's phone bill. Please, Sergeant, if Harry's done something wrong, he did it for us. Me and the baby. Harry's not bad. Yes, ma'am. 
He's done something. He did it for us. Harry hasn't had it easy. He wanted to get things for the baby. Clothes, a better house. All he wanted was a little happiness. A little happiness. You had it wrong, ma'am. Hmm? You don't buy it with bum checks. Before we left Mrs. Johansson, we called and had a stakeout placed on the house. And then we got a sample of her husband's handwriting and the Long Beach telephone number that he was in the habit of calling. The next morning, Don Myers and handwriting compared Harry Johansson's letter with the signatures on the worthless checks. It matched. We called the Harrington Universal Cosmetics Company. They never heard of Harry Johansson. We called that Long Beach phone number. A woman answered and gave us the address where the telephone was installed. Turned out to be a swanky, modern apartment house. In apartment 18, we interviewed a good-looking brunette. She identified herself as Harry Johansson's common-law wife. She was well-dressed, and the apartment was richly furnished. What's it all about? What do you want, Harry? Police business. You know where he is? Well, what's he done? Do you know where he is? Uh, he drove into Hollywood this morning. Might be back tonight. I'm, I don't know for sure. Is this your apartment? Yeah. Mine and Harry's. You're sure that uh, Joe Hunt is not here now? Of course I'm sure. Why? Well, you won't mind if we come in and look around, huh? I have a right to know what it's all about. Johansson's wanted for forgery. Now, if you want to get involved, you help him hide out. I'm not asking for that kind of trouble. Go ahead and look. Mm-hmm. Take the bedroom, will you, Ben? All right. Never mind, cop. Thanks for the help, honey. I don't want any part of your troubles, Harry. I didn't know a thing about it, officer. Ben? Yeah. You better come along, too, lady. Well, tell him, Harry. I don't know what it's about. What's the idea of getting me mixed up in this? How do you think I was paying for this place? Taking you out, buying us clothes for you. I don't want any part of it. Three-room apartment, a couple of dresses. That's all he ever got me. You got no complaints, lady. Huh? That's more than he bought his kids. 1 p.m. Friday. Ben and I took Harry Johansson to the county jail where he was booked for suspicion of forgery. We called Mrs. Johansson and notified her. She immediately contacted friends and relatives and raised enough money for a writ to have her husband released from jail. Three days later, Johansson was arraigned and a date set for his preliminary hearing. After the arraignment, Ben and I took him back to the county jail for rebooking. I'd like to ask you a question, Johansson. Yeah? You got any money of your own left? Why don't you stick to your own business, copper? That family of yours is having a pretty rough time. Your wife borrowed every cent she could find to bail you out. Now, what's she going to live She's on? She's got relatives. No, where's the elevator? Come on, Johansson. They're not going to put me back in Folsom. Not in a hundred years. You've done two stretches already for hanging paper. You should have known better, mister. You got it all figured out, haven't you, Fuzz? Well, I'm not going back. Take it easy. You got a couple of more weeks on bail before the trial. Yeah. A couple of weeks. What's the matter with you? Don't you feel well? They won't get me back to Folsom. You're not making it any easier on yourself. All right, Archie. Don't you cops understand? I hate it. Every lousy bit of it. I'm not going back to Folsom. I'm not going back. Now, do you understand? It's a good idea, mister. You remember that when you get out. 
We booked Harry Johansson into county jail. His bail was continued, and he was released pending the trial. During the next week, along with the district attorney's office, Ben and I helped prepare the case against Johansson. Three days before the trial opened, we had a phone call from Mrs. Johansson. She told us that her husband had disappeared. Well, there was nothing we could do until he actually failed to appear in Superior Court at the appointed time. On Monday, April 3rd, the case of the State versus Harry L. Johansson officially opened. The defendant failed to show. A bench warrant was immediately issued, and we got out a broadcast and an APB on the suspect. Stakeouts were placed in his house and at the apartment of his common-law wife. Two days passed. No sign of him. Nothing, Joe. Bumley just checked it out. Yeah. How about those two ex-con pals of Johansson's? Did you check with them? Yeah, nothing there. I don't see how I can last out much longer. One suit of clothes, no money. You still got a checkbook. Hmm. When did the skipper say he was coming back? On 7.30 tonight. 7.15 now. I'll get it. Forgery, Friday. Jefferson, this is your mother. Oh, yeah. Hi, Ma. I forgot to tell you when you called earlier, you're supposed to be home tonight by 8 o'clock. What's that, Ma? Mary Fowler, she's coming over to visit tonight, and Genevieve's coming with her. Yeah, well, look, will you try to explain to them that I'm working and I can't get away, huh? Well, all right, Joseph, I'll try. Well, if I possibly can, I'll try to make it home by 10. Will that be all right? Well, all right, Joseph, I'll see what I can do. Genevieve's going to be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, if I'm later than that, don't wait up for me, huh? Yes, all right, then. Bye, Ma. Yes. Hi, Joseph. Oh, hi, Skipper. The call just came in. Yeah. They found Johansson. Captain Elliott, Ben, and I drove out the highway to the Tahunga Wash. We turned off and headed into the Mount Gleason area. Captain Elliott directed us onto a dirt road. Halfway up one of the mountains, we spotted a group of cars pulled off on the shoulder of the road. We parked behind them, got out, and started over. Who found the car, Skipper? One of the people living back in the hills. Spotted it on his way home from work. Mm-hmm. Coroner got here in a hurry. Yeah. Hi, Dave. Oh, how you doing, Joe? Captain Elliot. How long has he been dead? Since last night, I figure. Come on over. Yeah. You talked to the man who found Johansson's body, Dave? Yeah, he didn't touch a thing. What'd you find? Powder burns on the temple, powder on the hands. Boys from homicide found the note. It was on the seat right next to him. Here it is, here. It's been checked. Yeah, thanks. All ties in, huh, Dave? Pretty tight, yeah. Gene Bechtel from Homicide wants to talk to you, Captain. Okay, be right back, Joe. Right. Who do you address the note to, Joe's wife? No, your girlfriend. Look why you wrote it on. Yeah, blank check. story you've just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On April 9th, an inquest was held in the coroner's office on the main floor of the Hall of Justice, Los Angeles, California. In a moment, the results of that inquest. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. The working detective comes in contact with many people in his daily tour of duty, people who are willing to cooperate and those who won't even try. It's a difficult task, but the police officer has been trained to try to please everybody to the best of his ability. So with a cigarette, the people who make Fatima try to please all long cigarette smokers. 
They carefully select and blend the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos to make Fatima extra mild, the best of all long cigarettes. Now, if you're a long cigarette smoker like I am, smoke Fatima. Every pack is extra mild. Fatima. On April 9th, the coroner's jury returned a verdict that the death of Harry L. Johansson was caused by a gunshot wound in the head, self-inflicted. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet from Los Angeles. Coming up, Duffy's Tavern. More good times on NBC. Now you can double your listening pleasure by subscribing to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. For only 99 cents a month, you gain access to more shows for your enjoyment. Subscribe now, and happy listening. This is the log of Magnus Carter. Space Force and its crew are now on Mars, but only after a strange sequence of events. Before we left Earth, Chipper and Lodric visited the Great Steppe Pyramid in Egypt and there encountered two strangers who appeared, behaved and spoke like ancient Egyptians. These figures then turned up in one of our expedition's freight ships. Little could be learned from the stowaways, except that they claimed to come from a planet called Kemet, which the Space Force identified as Mars. At last, the red planet was reached. The very next day, it was discovered that the stowaways had jumped ship, though where they'd gone remained a mystery. Meanwhile, the schedule for the exploration of Mars, within the vicinity of the Valles Marineris, was put into operation. Saxon and Lodric left the ship in the land vehicle and went in search of rocks and minerals. Then they caught sight of a huge pyramidal-shaped rock situated in the valley below the horizon. Such an interesting spot. The mineral content of these rocks is extraordinary. Where are you precisely? On the far side from you. In the land, Explorer? No, no on foot. The transporter can't go everywhere. Are you close together? What is spacesuits? Well, don't worry. The way this rock is formed, it's only like walking up a flight of shallow steps. We'll call you again in a minute or two. Right. Pyramid steps. Next thing they'll be telling us, I found a step pyramid. <laughs> oh, good heavens! Look at that! Lightning like a gun feed! Look at I! Where did it come from? Quick, get out of there! Wait till I find the switch. I'm as blind as a bat. Hello, Saxon. Hearing you. Saxon, what is it? Space Force, an intergalactic adventure by Charles Chilton, starring Barry Foster, Nigel Stock, 
Nicky Henson, Antonio Soba. Episode 3, The Great Martian Pyramid. I'm blind. I can't see a thing. Loderick! Do you hear me, Loderick? Hello, flagship. This is Saxon calling Space Force 2. Come in, please. Hello, hello. This is Saxon. My radio must have failed, but in case the transmitter's still functioning, I'll continue to talk. Ah! Ah, oh, the blindness appears to be only temporary. It's, it's, it's beginning to clear now. Just above me, I, I can see an opening. An entrance into the pyramid. Behold the eye of light. Oh! Oh! Still nothing on the radio. What could have happened? Can you see yet? Hardly. But it's clearing. Me too. Hello, Saxon, Lodric, flagship calling Saxon. What happened? If they can hear, then they can't reply. Why? What did Saxon say? Bat, Lodric, back to the ship. Then he sounded as if he was being strangled. And then, not a word. And that was over five minutes ago. We must go out and look for them. Don't be too hasty, Chipper. You know the rule. But we can't The ship be... must not be left unmanned except in extreme emergency. But that's what this is. Saxon said so. Give them one more call. Yes, but we can't. Give them one more call. Hello, Saxon. Hello, Lodric. This is flagship Space Force calling. Can you hear me? Over. It's no good. We'll have to go out and look for them. How's your vision? Coming back fast. Mine too. Put your spacesuit on. Yes, well, how do we get to them? They've got the land explorer. We use the emergency solarmobiles. There. Look. You can see where they swerved round that rock. How are your eyes? Almost clear. Few bright coloured spots, that's all. And you? The same. And just as well. Can't we go faster? No, not on this terrain. There's no point in inviting trouble. Head for the top of the slope. Now, what can you see? Nothing but red dust and boulders. Well, that one over there must be the pyramidal rock that Saxon described. That's where they are, then. No, wait. What for? Carefully, does it? No point in our rushing into disaster as well. Now, scan the valley. There's nothing there. Very well. We'll go down. About time at all. But take it slowly and keep your eyes open. Can't see him. We'll do a little searching on foot. Leave your automobile here. Did Lodric get back to the land explorer? I don't think so. There's only two sets of tracks and they both lead to the rock. That's where we'd better look next. Right. Last thing Saxon said before the emergency call was that they were going to climb that rock. Easy as a flight of steps. Yeah. Well, that's just how it appears. It is a regular step pyramid after all. Could be. Look at it. Without the weathering, it would be a perfect solid geometrical figure. What weathered it? Thousands of years of their storms could reduce the largest pyramid in Egypt to a crumbling ruin. I didn't know they had them on Mars. The storms, I mean. Oh, yes. Now, stand 
step carefully. Look for tracks. Okay. Here's some. Well done, Chipper. This is where they must have started to climb. Come on. Up there. And then they couldn't have climbed far. Never had the time. You think we'll find them? We must. Come on. A higher viewpoint will allow us to see much more. It's no good. They could be anywhere out in that desert. Lying behind any one of those rocks. We'll have to examine the lot. No need. They were already climbing the pyramid when Saxon gave his call. Then if they're here, we should see them. Right. So where are they? They could have just vanished into thin, well, thin carbon dioxide. No, no, they must be somewhere on these steps. But we'd have seen them. One more search. We'll go from here to the end and back. And the same for the next three rows. Climbing even higher. They said they were on this side, the far side from the ship. That was before they started to climb. Before the emergency call. Yes, but they no, might wait, have... Wait a minute. What's this? What's what? An opening. Like into a cave. What? They, they, they might have gone in. Magnus, this can't be natural, you know. I think it can. I've seen galleries as well formed as this in England, under the Mendips, and all cut by nature. The constant wear of water for thousands of years. But there's no water on Mars. You said so. There was once, and this could be proof of it. Let's go back, Magnus. Saxon and Lodric couldn't have had time to come this far, assuming they came in here at all. Just a few yards more, they may be here. It gets much wider up ahead. Roof gets higher, too. Yes. You are right, Chipper. This can't be natural. It's too symmetrical. The walls are too smooth. I'll say it's not natural. Look over here, on the wall. What? A picture, a painting. Show me where. Here. What an incredible thing. More incredible than you think. How? I've seen this picture before. Impossible. Inside the step pyramid at Saqqara, down on Earth. And that's not all. See, there. Who's that? No flat. <laughs> the very image of no flat. Except for the see-through robe. No wonder when I came in I had the feeling I'd been here before. The gallery, the picture, they're all the same. Then this must be where Saxon and Lodric are. Where did this gallery, uh, I mean the gallery down on Earth, lead to? To an ancient tomb with a mummy and treasure in it. Except that the mummy had been removed just before we got there. By Merry Anchor and his crowd, most likely. Show me the way. Now, wait a minute. We got locked in that tomb all night. Who knows what might happen here? We have to find Saxon and Lodric. There's no sign of their being outside, so they must be in the air. Not necessarily. There was more than one entrance into the Saqqara Pyramid. We don't know where the other entrances are. Finding this one is our best luck so far. We must exploit it. Well, come on, then. This way... Father, Chipper, we seem to be walking forever. We've come about the right distance. Entrance to the tomb should appear any second. Ah, there it is. What a doorway. 
Yeah, much bigger than the one in the Saqqara pyramid, but the same shape. They're usually fake. You can't go through them. But there's always one that works. Now that's the one we have to find. Uh, let's try this for a start. Keep trying, there's bound to be one. What about that one? Look, uh, with ancient picture writing all over it. Yeah. It's bigger than all the others. It won't be easy to open it either, even if it is the right door. Wearing spacesuits is no help. Put your torch down and let's try now. Ready? Ready? Torch! <laughs> so easy! We going through? Of course. Be on your guard. You bet. Crikey! The Hall of Columns! You've seen this before too? Yeah. In the Saqqara tomb, there was a... Oh, God, what's that? Oh, it's a man with a bird's head. It's hideous. Keep calm, Chipper. No, it's horrible. Calm down. It's not uncommon, you know. Hey? Many of the ancient Egyptian gods are portrayed as human with animal heads. Well, who's this, then? A hawk-headed human. That represents Horus, god of the sun and sky. Gave me quite a fright, thank goodness. He's not real. Utter not falsely the name of Ray. Blimey, he is real. Chipper! The door's closing! Oh! They've shut us in! We're trapped! How countless are the words of the great god Ray? Look upon his eye and wait with fear. Oh, God! The light! Turn it off! It's blinding! Look! Turn your head away! All men bow down before him. I can't bear it! All men prostrate themselves at his shrine. Stop the light, stop! He is all powerful, <laughs> yet he is merciful. No, no! Chipper, it's all right, Chipper, you can look up. The light has gone. He makes his light to shine on every man and every creature. Blessed is the name of praise. Thank goodness for that. That light, I couldn't bear it. I wonder if he can hear us. I don't know. Let's just get out of here. How? At least we can try and open the door. You cannot escape. The door is marked. Oh, <laughs> you can hear us. Ray hears all things. Ray? He is Lord of all things. He said that. Blessed be the great God, Ray. Hey, hey, no, wait a minute. You can't go now. Wait. Gone. Callis dropped down in front of him. Now we're barely trapped. Just like in Sakara. Only worse. Eh? How? In Sakara, there was air to breathe. Here, there's only carbon dioxide. But we're wearing spacesuits. We've got our own air supply. For eight hours, and two hours of that has already been used. Oh, I see. How long were you trapped in the tomb at Sakara? About 15 hours. Well, if the Cometians leave it that long this time, they'll find a couple of dead Earthmen on their hands. been here now? Five hours. Just over five hours. They've left us to die, haven't they? I don't know. They must have done. And why not? Why should they care if we die? They're not really human. Exactly. That's why they should want us alive. We should be of interest to them. Yeah. 
Well, we're obviously not. But we can't just give up, Magnus. There must be some way of opening this entrance, some way of escape. There isn't. It's a replica of the pyramids on Earth. The only mechanism is on the outside. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. We must be able to... What's that? There. Behind you. In the wall. It's a lever. Look. You're right. Come on, Magnus. It must operate a door. One push and we'll be out of here. It's working. It's working. That entrance over there is opening. Thank goodness. I knew we'd be able to get out of here somehow. Stay close behind, Magnus. I'll just... Oh! The entrance. It just leads into another chamber, even smaller than this one. You're right, Magnus. There is no escape. I estimate we have less than half an hour's air left. Hey, Magnus. Look, the door's open. There's no use now. We'll never make it back to the ship. We might as well try. Oh no, who's this? Not from the neck up. They better not lay a hand on me. You'll be wise not to try and lay a hand on them. Stay calm. Till we know what they want. The great god king, Ray, called Natum, summons you to his presence. You must follow us. They may have animal heads, but they have very human voices. This way. Come on, Chipper. What are they going to do to us? Whatever it is, it can't be worse than suffocating, which will happen in about 30 minutes from now. Do as she says. There's no turning back now. You may take off your helmets. What? In this atmosphere? How do we breathe? Within the city, the air is pure, even for Earthmen. What do you think, Magnus? It's not doing him any harm. All right, then. I'm going to test it and see. Get ready to lock my helmet back on if I pass out. Let me take hold of it, then. Right. All right, then. Here I go. Yes. Yes. It is breathable. Quite safe. Well, up to now. Come on, Magnus, take your helmet off. Ah, yes. Beautiful air. Is it oxygen? Where does it come from? I don't know. How are these creatures able to breathe air and carbon dioxide? These are your quarters. A tomb? It is a dwelling place. Looks just like a tomb I saw down on Earth. Even the furniture. You must prepare to meet the God King Ray called Natum. Garments are in the next room. Handmaidens will assist you. What are they supposed to do? If we go into the next room, we'll find out. Come on. Help me push the door. There. Good gracious. Saxon and Loderick. Hello, Magnus. Chipper. 
<laughs> look at Modric! What kept you? What's going on? These ladies are saying that we're suitably attired. Suitably attired? To be shown into the presence of the great god King Ray called Natu. But where are your spacesuits? Stowed away. <laughs> Is that all you intend to wear? Killed the pair of sandals? <laughs> more than these girls were. So I see. And, uh, what's that sweet smell? <clears throat> It's us. <laughs> Scented oil. Come on, you'd better be anointed and dressed. Yeah, well, me? But suppose I don't want to be. If you take my advice, you'll go quietly and get it over. And you, Magnus. I don't think there's any way to avoid it. I see. Very well. If they insist. Uh, <clears throat> how do I look? Fine! Feel a right idiot, especially in this wig. That goes for all of us. Now sit down. Whilst we're alone, we have a lot to talk about. We certainly have. The first thing is how you and Lodric landed up here. We were captured and brought here by a crowd of animal-headed humans, if you can call them human. How about you? We found our way in here by accident while we were searching for you. A hawk-headed man trapped us in a kind of mortuary chapel and then had us brought here to meet the God King, they said. Those handmaidens. Just look at that food. What a feast. Put it right here. Uh, and who's this? Musicians. They've sent us music with our meal. Yes, they're certainly treating us well. What with the beautifully tiled walls, the elegant furniture, the scented oil, the food and the music, I'm beginning to feel just like a pharaoh. But why are they treating us this well? How much longer are they going to leave us here? Must be two hours since we ate. How should I know? Why don't you just relax and enjoy the music? I would if I could understand it. And if she knows anything else? Why don't you ask her? Ask them a question and all they do is stretch out their arms, put their hands together and bow their heads. A sign of obeisance. Why don't they talk? Probably not allowed to. They've been told that we're too high and mighty for a conversation to take place between us. Greetings. May the light of Ray shine upon you. You are bathed and refreshed? Yes, thank you. What happens now? Follow us. The God King awaits. We passed along a lengthy corridor until we came to a large stone door which rose to let us pass through. We entered a great palatial hall, whose roof was supported by many rows of pillars carved to represent lotus plants and palm trees. At the end of the hall, we came face to face with a number of elevated platforms, and seated on the top on a large throne of stone was a hawk-headed man. Once we had come into the presence of the God King, we lined up before the bottom step of the dais and faced him. One of our escorts, the jackal-headed creature bowed low before the God King, climbed to the top step, and turned to face the hall. Hear ye the words of Sekhmet, the mighty one, goddess of war, whose body emits the fiery glow. 
Look upon the face of the great God-King, Horus Cornatum, the Ever-Merciful. Look upon the Eye of Rey. Down! Quick! Blood on the floor! Cover your eyes! It's that light again! She's got some sort of a cross with a loop at the top like an eye. Called an anchor. Whatever it's called, whenever she turns it on us, it emits this incredible light. Look upon the Eye of Rey and tremble. So that's where it comes from. Everyone get down in time? No one hurt? Oh, no. No. All right. Hear his voice and tremble. Ah, men. We welcome you to Kermet. Which of you is lord of the great Sunboat? God has spoken. Who is lord of the great Sunboat? I am. I'm called a commander, not a lord. Commander Saxon Berwick. But tell me... Silence! What? Speak only when addressed. All I want... Silence! Everybody down! There's no need to blind us again! It is the all-seeing eye. Men tremble at its glance. Arise and hear the word of your God. Do not speak until addressed. Lord Commander Saxon called Berry. Do you know the secret of the Sunstone? I've never heard of the Sunstone. Lord, I have never heard of the Sunstone. Lord, I have never heard of the Sunstone. Is there no one among your servants who knows? I do, my lord. You, Ludwig? It means the motive power of the sunboat in the boat grave down on Earth. Who are you that knows the Sunstone? Lodric Sincere, my lord. Flight engineer of Space Force. You are more than welcome to Kermet. The blessing of Ray go with you forever. The hawk-headed creature questioned us for a long time, mostly about the ship and our duties aboard it. Then, at long last, the audience came to an end, and he left amidst great pomp and ceremony. Then we were ordered to our feet, and escorted back to our sepulchral but beautifully furnished quarters. Well, what was all that about? He seemed mainly interested in the ship. He wants to use it. But why? To get away from here. Did you ever see such a place? No water, no air, everybody forced to live underground? Where would he go? Well, anywhere would be better than here. <laughs> there are plenty of worse places in the solar system. What? Your Fred, what are you doing here? Greetings. And Marianka. May the blessings of Ray shower upon you. Where did you two come from? And how did you manage to get out of our ship? We are the bearers of joyful news. You're releasing us. The great King God, Ray called Natum, receives you into his service. How do you know? He himself commanded us to bring this news to you. He is our God and our Lord. Well, he didn't see you at the audience he gave us. I stood at the god's right hand. What? You were one of those creatures with animal heads? The priest of Seth. The king god's defense in the mighty sunboat against the great serpent and the powers of darkness and evil. But your animal head looked so real. So will yours. Mine. You are to be priest of Ray, whose eye is the sun. You are all to be honored and given new names. But what you if are we to be appointed high officials in the King God's court and serve by his side as lords of the great sunboat. 
What about our release? Yes, release? Back to our sunboat. There is no release. What? No servant of the God King Ray can ever be released. Never? You mean he expects us all to serve to the death? Unto death and beyond. In that episode of Space Force, Chipper was played by Nicky Henson, Saxon by Barry Foster, Magnus by Nigel Stock, and Loderick by Tony Osoba, with Wendy Murray, Willoughby Goddard, and Bernard Brown. Space Force was written by Charles Chilton and produced by Paul Mayhew Archer. Listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.